You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Beth Accomando. Thank you for having me back on. This week, we are discussing A Better Tomorrow. Released in 1986, the film is seen as a hallmark of the heroic bloodshed subgenre of action films, doing for gunplay what a generation of Hong Kong films had done for swords. The film tells the tale of Ho, played by T. Long, a criminal whose younger brother, Kit, played by Leslie Chung, is a police officer. He's betrayed by a fellow gangster and sent up the river. When he returns, he wants to stay on the right side of the law, which is much more difficult than it should be. That's a very simple version of a story which speaks to loyalty, brotherhood, and that put Chow Yun-Fat on the map as a bankable action star. So, Beth, I'm curious, when was the first time you saw A Better Tomorrow, and what did you think? Well, my introduction to Hong Kong cinema actually came through that fantastic Jonathan Ross show, The Incredibly Strange Film Show. And I saw some clips from John Woo and Choi Hawk, and I was like, where the hell are they making movies like that? And then I went to a local karaoke shop where they also carried these Hong Kong movies and on Laserdisc. So um, that's how old it was. And then the Ken Cinema, which is our landmark theater, decided to have a Hong Kong film festival, like four days, not much. But they had 
uh, Jackie Chan, John Woo, Chow Yun-fat films. And so in four days, I saw Chinese Ghost Story, Police Story, Better Tomorrow, Hard Boiled. I can't remember what the other one, but it was just like I had this massive sensory overload um, with all these films at once. And then I went to that karaoke place and this guy, Forrest Batson, loved Hong Kong movies. And I remember him flipping through the laser discs like two cubby holes at a time, like just going like at rapid speed, going through them and like pulling out the ones that he thought were important for me to watch. And I would take these stack of laser discs home as homework and then watch them. And it was just, I, I mean, I could not get enough of these movies. They made me, they were intoxicating. They were like just delirious. I, yeah, I just fell in love immediately. I think that A Better Tomorrow might have been my second woo. I know for sure I saw The Killer first, and I know I talked about this on the Killer episode that we did, that I had a, a friend, uh, Mike Thompson, who's been on the show before, he was on the Highlander episode, and he described The Killer as the Evil Dead 2 of action films. I said, okay, whatever that is, I need to see it. And then after that, I kind of got a, a little bit more serious about Hong Kong action films because that just blew the lid off of my head. And seeing A Better Tomorrow, it was a little bit slower paced, obviously, than The Killer, but it was just left quite a mark on me. And that movie uh, really showed me more than The Killer even was a better entry in the whole heroic bloodshed type of, uh, you know, talking about loyalty and all these things, just that whole idea of the betrayal, the three gangsters at the beginning, the relationship of the three characters, the literal brothers, and then the gangster brothers, and just uh, seeing all of those things play out. And it's amazing to go back to that film and see the way that there are so many seeds that are planted in A Better Tomorrow. And of course, some of those had been in previous Wu films, but A Better Tomorrow was kind of like a real sea change for Wu. And to see those seeds kind of grow up into some of the other things that we would see in The Killer, in Hard Boiled, in, of course, A Better Tomorrow 2, and then eventually into some of the American films. Nary a dove to be seen in sight in this film. Thank God for that. Which is now more of like a a cliche, if not almost a self-parody at this point, if we see a, a Dove in a John Woo film. And religious references, too. There's, you know, there's churches and there's religious statues and crosses. And, you know, he's a guy who is genuinely, you know, kind of religious. I, I remember when I interviewed him, he talked about the fact that his family had been very poor and that part of the reason he was able to go to school was that he received money from some sort of American sponsor through a church. And so he talks about the church in a very, that's part of what helped me get out. And you see kind of these references. I mean, shootouts happen in churches. And, you know, after someone gets shot, there's like a whip pan over to some like Pieta over in the corner or something. And uh, and it's interesting because it, it's a lot of like Catholic and Christian imagery as opposed to, you know, something that would be more Eastern. The script for the Walter Hill remake of The Killer was more Asian than The Killer was. <laughs> like, he had the the end gunfight taking place at a Buddhist temple instead of a Christian church. I was like, come on, Walter. You, know, you, you really don't have to sprinkle all this stuff in here. But 
Yeah, that was his thing. Both Chow and Wu also grew up on American movies. I mean, those are the films that really seem to influence them. There's those weird parallels between Wu wanting to, if memory serves, he wanted to go into the church. And that was also the thing with Martin Scorsese. And then you see a shot like uh, when Wu actually enters into the movie after one of the best gunshot, you know, uh, shootouts ever on film, when he enters into the film and he's floating down the through the hallway, and it's just this shot that you would expect to see in Mean Streets. And really, the entry of, of Chow Yun-Fat into that scene before him was very similar to what had gone on in Mean Streets. So those two filmmakers, it, it's weird how they parallel each other at times. And the way they deal with violence, too. I mean, there's... Well, especially Wu, there's this, like, it's a combination of being this poetic ballet, but also very in your face. I mean, there are so many times when in these shootouts, it's not people shooting great distances all the time. There are moments when it's the blood from the guy that's just been shot sprays over the person and killing someone has some sort of impact in some way. But there's... I, I mean, I remember in Hard Boil, he's got the the flower, you know, all over his face because he he just went through part of the kitchen, and then he shoots this guy at very close range, and it sprays in his face. And we later find out that that was, I believe, that was the one who was the uh, undercover cop that he kills. And in Bullet in the Head, there's, you know, when he's one of the characters is forced to kill someone, it's at six inch range, where, you know, that's very personal, and yet. There's this delirious quality to the the violence as well that you can watch and you kind of feel guilty that you're deriving so much intoxication from the images that he puts on the screen. I know it's a little late to be saying this, but I should warn people that we're going to be getting into spoilers galore oh, on this sorry, episode. Yes. No, no, it's fine. You haven't let the cat out of the bag at all. So I just want to say, not only are we going to be talking about A a Better Tomorrow, but we'll talk about A Better Tomorrow 2, we'll talk about A Better Tomorrow 3, we'll talk about Bullet in the Head. Of course, we'll be talking about other Wu films along the way. I don't think we can really ruin like Face Off or uh, A Broken Arrow for you, but there are other things. And then also we'll be talking about like the remake of A Better Tomorrow, both the Indian and the Korean version. So there's a lot of stuff that's going to get ruined for people. So if you haven't seen these films and don't want anything spoiled for you, but really so much of, and one of the reasons why we're talking about A Better Tomorrow is that so much of what we know in action films today is influenced by what could have been seen as a little Hong Kong action film from 1986, and that it just... it was a huge hit when it came out, and it made this giant impact on all action films. And it just, it, 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 the, it was amazing what it did for Hong Kong cinema, what it did for action movies, what it did for the stars of this film, especially Chow Yun-Fat. I mean, that, people listening to this episode know the name Chow Yun-Fat comes from the success of A Better Tomorrow and then what he did after he parlayed that success. I mean, he was a great actor at the time. He had been on television. He'd been in a lot of movies, but this really put him on the map. And so 
I just want to let people know that that's we're we're going to be talking about that kind of stuff. And one other thing, just a little bit of trivia on here. This is actually according to the uh, Hong Kong Film Awards. This is the number two of the best 100 Chinese motion pictures that have ever come out. So I'm surprised that is number two and not number one. But I guess they had to kind of throw a bone to China itself. And so 1948's uh, Spring in a Small Town is the number one. And I can't say I've seen that one yet, but I have definitely seen the number two film. And if you haven't seen it, even with the spoilers, it's still worth seeing. I mean, we can discuss it till we're blue in the face, but nothing matches that imagery on the screen and the effect it has on you. I mean, I just hope that people hear this and if they haven't seen it, just can't help themselves but go out and rent these films immediately. Well, there are so many amazing moments in this. And even in the opening credits, you're getting just these images that will stay with you forever. And I mean, I think it's even on my, it might be my profile picture on my Twitter, the image of Chow Yun-Fat lighting a cigarette with a $100 bill that's on fire. That's in the opening credits of this. And then it just goes up from there. Like a throwaway shot, like a throwaway shot. (laughs) (laughs) Most people would build a scene to that. And John Woo just tosses it out there like, you know, I can create this anytime. Chow is just so charismatic. I mean, he comes on the screen and he's got this smile and you just you can't resist him. You can't take your eyes off him. I mean, everything about him is just like perfectly tuned to make him like the poster boy for Hong Kong cool. That he almost wasn't cast in this. That he was the one that they were unsure of. Like, well, we've got Leslie Chung, who's a bankable canto pop star, right. and we've got T Lung, who is a bankable action star of old. Uh, we're not really sure about this Chow Yun Fat guy. And that he, basically he steals the film from everybody yep. involved. So, what was it like meeting Chow Yun Fat? All right, I've gotten to meet him, I think it's been three times now, and each time. Um, I kind of have had a story to tell about it because he's he's a really great guy. And the first time was in, I believe it was 96, and I interviewed him at this, like, Century City Hotel. And he walked over, like, in flip-flops and a T-shirt from where he was staying at some friend's house. And he walked over, and then he apologized profusely because he hadn't brought a wallet with him, so he had no money. And I said, oh, we'll just, like, we can go sit in the restaurant and and, you know, just you know, have a cup of tea or something. And I was doing the interview for Giant Robot magazine, and they wanted to do a cover story on him. And they wanted, you know, a real chow yun fat image to put on the on the cover. And so we went to the rooftop of the hotel where they had like some nice scenery. And, and he's genuinely like a really shy and humble person. And so he felt really uncomfortable. And he was just kind of like sitting there looking awkward and and they were trying to get him to, you know, really be that cocky Chowian fat character. And my ex at the time was smoke, smoked cigars. And so he had a box of wooden matches with him. And I was like, oh, dude, give me one of those wooden matches. And I went up to Chow and I handed him a wooden match. And I go, here, would this help? And he put the wooden match in his mouth and started to flip it back and forth. And suddenly he was jumping on the furniture. And, you know, he ran to the they, – they put him in the divide on the middle of the big street we were on. And he was, like, doing these kung fu moves in the middle of, you know, L.A. traffic. And – 
He was a different person, but it was just like he just needed something to take him out of himself and to kind of pretend he was someone else. And it was great. And they got a great cover shot for the giant robot magazine. Then the second time I interviewed him, I had driven up from San Diego with a friend who was going to run the audio for me. And it was raining and we barely made it on time for the interview. And we rushed in to to do the interview. And he came up to me and he shook my hand and he goes, Beth, how are things in San Diego? And then he kissed me on both cheeks. I forgot every question I was going to ask him. And I know, like, he has a good publicist who told him, like, this is Beth. She's from San Diego. You interviewed her. You know, she interviewed you once before. I mean, I I don't in any shape or form think that he actually remembered me. But the fact that he kissed me on both cheeks and I was like that ridiculous 12-year-old girl in the, the audience in A Hard Day's Night, like— Total fangirl. And my friend who was with me, like, had to bow his head and was giggling because he was just like, you just, like, melted into this ridiculous thing that couldn't form a sentence. <laughs> it was just like, I, I ha- it's so embarrassing to admit that he had that effect. He's a genuinely, like, really charming guy. And when I remember I was on the press tour for um, Curse of the Golden Flower. And they had set up interviews for me for Zhang Yimo and Gong Li, but they hadn't been able to set up an interview for me um, with Chow Yun-Fat. But it was a press day. So, you know, everybody's kind of like in this hotel area and, you know, everybody's, you know, being interviewed. And the publicist was like really kind of annoyed with him. She goes like, well, you know, everybody else was so easy to deal with, but he's just, you know, been really difficult. And and we haven't gotten an answer from him about doing the interview. So I wouldn't hold out any hope for, you know, getting this interview. And I was thinking like, I go, wow, it doesn't really sound like him. You know, it's always been easy to set up interviews in the past. And so she and her assistant were just kind of like, all right, he's just arrived. I, you know, I don't, don't get your hopes up or anything. And she's like, oh, I'm just like so done with dealing with him. And she was like, and then they walked off and they went into, you know, whatever room they had set him up in. And like five minutes later, they came out giggling like schoolgirls, And they were just like, oh, my God, he's so wonderful. Oh, my God, he's the sweetest man. Oh, don't worry. Yeah, you've got your interview. No problem at all. Like, oh, and they were just chattering with each other like, oh, my God, yeah, he was just, he was so sweet. <laughs> I was just kind of like, oh, my, see, he's got that charm. Like, you can't resist him. Like, even if it was him who was mean, he would, like, just smile at you and take your hand and kiss it and you're a goner. But he's a very, like, self-effacing guy. Like, he doesn't—it's hard to get him to talk about acting in terms of, like, interpreting his role or, like, what he did. You know, he, if you ask him about parts, sometimes he'll just say, like, oh, I remember that costume was really uncomfortable, you know, uh, and things like that. And he doesn't like to kind of, you know, be very introspective about his performances. He says, you know, like, ah, I'd rather go cook a nice meal for someone or something. Um but he was like a genuinely like really nice guy and utterly charming. And if he had said, will you run off with me today? I would have gone. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to blame you there. I, I bet if he asked you, you'd go too. In a heartbeat. Well, and then there's also the great story about he wore these Alan Delon sunglasses in the film. And Alan Delon is, you know, this a kind of a French precursor to Chow Yun-Fat in the sense he's this like gorgeous 
actor who was very physically adept at just like he had this grace on screen where he moved like some sort of panther or something. And so Chow like wore these Alan Delon sunglasses. And I guess the, sh- the sales of those sunglasses like jet- skyrocketed after he did this. But it was like those glasses and the duster coat, this kind of, you know, Western hero kind of look to him and lighting up the cigarette with the, the counterfeit bill and just he was just absolutely cool on screen. He, You can't resist him. That's all there is. <laughs> this movie, and when I watch it now, I can really start to appreciate some of the things that Wu was doing, because this wasn't just a dumb action movie by any stretch of the imagination. Just to see the, the way that he sets up the shots, and that we've got Chow Yun-Fat and T-Lung in the back of this car towards the beginning of the film, and then we've got Wai Lee in the front, and so we're getting these two shots of Fat and, and Lung, and then the one shot of Lee, which really puts him at odds with them From visually. The and yeah. then even when they go into this uh, counterfeit place, we are constantly seeing two shots of those guys and then single shots of Weissa Lee, putting him already out of the mix. And so when he ends up betraying T-Lung and eventually Mark as well, uh, the Chow Yun-Fat character, it makes total sense. And we've already had that set up visually from the very beginning of the film, that he's on the outs mm-hmm. from these guys. Even though they treat him like a brother, there's a moment where he's coughing, and Chow Yun-Fat comes up, and he like peels off a couple bills, and then he takes the rest of the wad and gives it to Weiss Lee, and is just like, you know, go take care of yourself. And then that gets echoed a few scenes later, after... T. Lung has now gone to prison, and uh, Mark, who has, uh, sorry, the Chow Yun Fat character, who has settled some debts, and he now has a, a bad leg. There's a shot where Weiss Lee comes out. Now he's the man of the uh, the gangster organization, and he just peels off some bills, and rather than even hand them to Chow Yun Fat, he just throws them on the ground, and then off he goes in his car. Meanwhile, Chow Yun Fat had just like washed the guy's windows, and it's just mm-hmm. like. It's heartbreaking, but it's this wonderful visual rhyme of the bills coming off and just how one guy can treat somebody with respect. And Weiss Lee is just this such a shit in this movie. And he plays a shit better than anybody that I can think of in these Hong Kong films. Yeah. And that comes back in uh, Bullet in the Head. You talk about heartbreaking. Like, that's one of the things that Wu is so good at. His films, like, I find I love his movies, but some of them. I have a hard time watching again just because I know that if I'm going to sit down and watch it, I'm going to have like my heart ripped out and handed to me and I'm going to, you know, want to cry and have a box of Kleenex with me. And I don't cry at movies. So like that's a rare thing. But he just he gets you so emotionally involved with the characters. And then he has these like horrible moments of betrayal or cruelty. And you're just like, no, <laughs> like, why are you doing this to me? And uh, I mean, in fact, that's one of the reasons why I, I had kept some of these films away from my son, because he was really small when I first got introduced to these Hong Kong movies. And I let him watch Jackie Chan films and Stephen Chow movies. And even if they had violence in them and stuff, that wasn't an issue. I go, these were an issue because they were painful. Like it was, some of them are just so sad and try like, like the killer. I have a hard time. Like I really have to like morally brace myself to put it on, even though it's got some of the most 
fabulous action and Chow Yun-fat is amazing in that film. But like I have to brace myself to watch that because I know it's going to put me through the grinder and bullet in the head especially. Like, wow, it's it's and, you know, that's the thing about Wu that is appealing. He's this like genuinely, you know, you use the word sentiment and usually that's kind of a negative, but he's this genuinely like sentimental guy. I mean, he really cares about these characters and he loves them and he makes you love them and it's very genuine and it's it doesn't feel like mawkish or fake or anything and um but it it gives a depth to these action films that a lot of other ones don't have this is also before he gets into those weird moments that he does in the killer and then he'll do in other films where he'll do the the quick flashback to things that we've seen like maybe mm-hmm. 10 minutes before it's like he almost starts to trip himself up at times because he was so successful from this film he starts to like move into other areas where he i don't know it's like he he does get a little mawkish at times um especially in the u.s films but uh yeah, yeah in this it feels 100 percent sincere and you're right i can't watch it like bullet in the head is one of my favorite woo films but it's not a movie i can just pop in and watch yeah. because it is so harrowing and the killer yeah especially the end of the killer is just one of those movies where i just think about that scene and i start to tear up a little bit because it's just oh it's so painful and i I don't want to say any more about that in case people haven't seen that one but they again they should if there's three movies that you're going to see by john woo it should be a better tomorrow the killer and hard-boiled. At least that's my opinion. I don't know if, if you have... You're, you're probably a huge Once a Thief fan. I do love Once a Once a Thief is a nice entry film if you're not sure about violence, like if you're not sure about action that's, that's too intense. Um, but hard-boiled is the one that I can watch all the time. That's like my go-to film when I've had a bad day. And I just pop that in. And even if all I watch is like the first 15 minutes, I feel so much better. And... It has the same kind of emotional punch that the other ones do, but not in the same kind of epic, tragic way. And the ending's a little more satisfying on an emotional level of not being too beat up. <laughs> and the, the action in that is really over the top. I mean, Wu talked about making this at a time like before the changeover, and he said, he felt like things were just insane in Hong Kong. And he felt like this was his reaction to kind of the craziness that was going on. And it was this wild, over-the-top action that there are so many scenes in that film that you just, your jaw drops and you just, it takes your breath away. And you're just like, I'm like, wow, why can't people make movies like this all the time? And still, that, like I said, that's my go-to film. I have a bad day. I pop that in. There's probably 100 people get killed in the opening 10 minutes or something, <laughs> and, and in the most stylish fashion. And you just, you like, I just feel like so much better after watching that. And talk about seeing seeds that play back later, the whole lighting the cigarette with the, you know, $100 bill. The bad guy in this one leans over like a flaming car that he's just exploded with a cigarette to light his cigarette and that. And then in Better Tomorrow 2, we have the whole sliding down the stairs in that one, whereas in Hard Boiled, we have him sliding down the banister in a little more hip and cool fashion. But that one's an easy one to watch repeatedly. The killer and and bullet in the head are emotionally (laughs) gut-wrenching. Even in 1986, when this one comes out, there are 
moments where you think that they're speaking about the handover and it's mm-hmm. this whole idea of that for me comes from once upon a time in the West. It's that whole idea of, you know, the, the old legends are moving on. And at one point when T Lung gets out of prison and he comes back and he visits Mark, who has basically been lying to him the whole time, sending him letters uh, while he was in prison saying, you know, how great everything was. And here's Mark with this gimpy leg who's living in the basement of a car park and eating his, his dinner out of a styrofoam container. And T-Lung's just like, you know, this is not our generation anymore. Things have moved on. And that totally reminds me of like, you know, Frank and and Harmonica are the legends of the Old West that are going to fade off into the distance eventually. And that's also something that comes up in The Killer with Sidney and um, uh, Danny Lee's boss, where it's like these are the guys who had the honor and had, uh, you know, the, the standing in the field. And then you've got people like uh, Xing Fuan who are, have no moral code whatsoever, and they're basically taking over the gangsters. And to me, that's like, okay, yeah, when 1997 happens and the handover happens and nobody knows what the hell is going ha- to occur, that that is the end of the era. That's the end of Hong Kong to Wu at this time. And that was key. I mean, that was one of the things when I was able to interview a lot of these Hong Kong and Chinese filmmakers and actors, I was doing that in the early 90s. And that was one of the things I was asking everyone was about the changeover. And it was because I did that. That was actually why I got hired at NPR was I pitched them a story about the changeover. And I said, oh, I've been talking to all these key players in Hong Kong and Chinese film industry since, you know, like 91 and asking them about the changeover. And I have this wealth of interviews that I can do. And so they didn't know anything else about me, but I had this like stockpile of interviews and, you know, all these people were concerned about it because nobody knew what was going to happen. And the, you know, Hong Kong and Chinese film industries, I mean, just from that perspective, not even from a broader social and political uh, point of view, but just from the point of view of what the film industry was like in in those two places, like that was a huge thing for those filmmakers and those artists. Like what what was that change going to be? You know, China faced a lot of censorship. Hong Kong was driven by the market. So both sides were kind of looking at the other going like, I kind of like that thing going on over there, but not that thing. But Like each side kind of wanted to try what the other was doing, like, oh, to not be, you know, mainly pushed by economics and the, you know, what would sell at the box office kind of appealing to me, which is sort of what happens in China. But, you know, the people in China are going like, oh, maybe we'll get a little of this, you know, hands off in terms of censorship and and have the market drive what we do so that. You know, if we have a film that's popular, maybe we can even get that made. So it was, in, it was a really interesting time. And some of that was filtering through in, in interesting and odd ways through the films that were being made. The whole Tiananmen Square incident, I mean, that really scared the shit out of mm-hmm. so many people because that seemed like it was what was going to happen to Hong Kong. It's just like, we're going to march the tanks in here and put down any sort of, you know, free market, free ideas that you guys possibly have. And I know there's a major shift after that. I mean, 
just coming back from Shanghai, I mean, Pudong as the economic center that it is, uh, which is the east side of Shanghai, that didn't exist. That was farmland in 1990 and then everything after that was basically after Tiananmen Square it was like okay we really need to change gears here and we need to become basically it was they wanted to become more like Hong Kong and they started this whole new economic area for different businesses and now it's this huge thriving thing but in 1989, when Tiananmen mm-hmm. Square happened, I mean, that speaks directly. You see shots in both A Better Tomorrow 3 and Bullet in the Head, and we'll talk about those movies mm-hmm. a little bit. But you see shots that mirror the Tiananmen Square incident right there on film. And it's just like, yes, this is really scaring these guys, and for good reason. Well, in both Better Tomorrow 3 and Bullet in the Head, there's a much – Bullet in the Head, that was Wu. Choi Hawk did Better Tomorrow 3. But both of them – have more of a sense of kind of the bigger picture of the world as opposed to Better Tomorrow, which you can read things into it, but it's really this kind of insular uh, story of these three guys, and it's very focused on them. But in those other films, you get much more of a sense of what they're thinking about how that reflects a bigger world and and other issues that are going on. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of personal stuff in A Better Tomorrow, and it is more on that micro level rather than the macro. Like, even the whole idea of the Weiss Lee character and T-Lung character going to Taipei, to Taiwan, and having this horrible experience there where T-Lung gets put back in jail and uh, where, you know, Weiss Lee has betrayed him. I mean, this whole thing really kind of comes from John Wu when he had gone to Taiwan and was working there and had a horrible experience. Obviously, he wasn't put in jail or anything, but just like not having a good time. So it's just like, you know, these different parts of you know, to, to, to him, Taiwan is this scary other island <laughs> which which you know to 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 us over here in, in America it's just like well yeah China's China but for him it's this major thing and becomes like this den of inequity and that's also where Chow Yun Fat has to kind of set the record straight and take care of the guy who also helped betray them. Like he doesn't necessarily know that Wisely had had a hand in this and it's uh, this other guy who he takes care of and that's the scene that we were talking about earlier where he comes in and they're playing this amazing canto pop song and he comes in with this girl and is pretty much acting drunk and pawing all over her and going through this hallway and as he's approaching each one of these flower pots or plants that's in the hallway he's putting a gun in each one of the planters and it's amazing because just like uh, what was it just a few months ago we were talking about John Wick 2 and there's him going through this kind of cavernous area going to uh, murder this person and as he's going along he's putting these guns in these different spots and so as I'm watching that I'm like oh this is Chow Yun-Fat in 1986, putting these guns in these pots and knowing that he's going to need them after he goes in and starts shooting these guys, he's going to need extra guns. Exactly. That whole sequence, that is one of the most beautifully set up sequences. And the John Wick reference is perfect. Yes, you can see the roots of that in there. And he's so stylish about how he does it. I mean, the way he moves down the hallway and just the way he kind of spins around. And and there's that whole the John Woo spin. You know, there's... (laughs) 
Oh, and the John Woo slow-mo. Yes, where, you know, the, everything's got to have just a little extra flair to it. You know, you can't just do it straight ahead, and there's always got to be that little extra twist to it. And, that you know, that's part of, I think, what made Hong Kong action films so attractive and internationally is that they just kicked things up a notch that we weren't seeing anywhere else at the time. And they were just delirious. That was like, that's the best word I can find for them is they just made you feel a little bit drunk on style. And the thing too that I loved is not only do you have the beauty of it, but then you have the brutality too, because after Mm -hmm. the guy shoots Chalian Fad in the knee and he comes over and there's like the baddie that he was there to kill. And not only does he shoot that guy, but then he unloads his clip in the guy's face. And it's just like, wow. You know, you don't see that, but you know what's happening. And it just takes your breath away at just how vicious it is. But it's so appropriate for that moment. Vicious and also just it's mesmerizing. The violence in his films is mesmerizing. And I know that when I spoke to him, he at the time I interviewed him, he said that he had never shot a gun himself. And his kind of film references for that was he grew up loving MGM musicals, things like Singing in the Rain and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And there is a very choreographed musical kind of feel to the way he does his action sequences. And I think that's part of what that allure is and why it feels different from other films that do similar things. But, yeah, it's just that sense of choreography, I think, is so key to what those Hong Kong action films did. I mean, I know they call – they may call it stunt choreography here, but what they were doing back then was just so light years ahead of – the kind of stuff they were doing here in the U.S. And I had a friend who was a cinematographer, and I remember showing him the opening to Hard Boiled, and he looked at it, and he was just like, oh, my God. He says, like, we couldn't even begin to do that. He says, the like, the rules and the laws and stuff. He says, like, we couldn't put that many people, <laughs> like, into an action scene like that and be able to pull it off um, with the union rules and certain things. He says, like, it's we just can't do it. And he was like amazed and impressed by that opening sequence and but that's part of what Wu's films are that was really part of his signature and that notion I think you mentioned heroic bloodshed was the kind of style of violence that he was particularly known for your mention about the union rules that always reminds me of the uh, the opening of Police Story when Jackie Chan is driving through that shanty town and <laughs> yes. you see one guy on a roof and he basically jumps off as a car is going through the building on which he's standing and I'm just like they couldn't do that in the states just the stuntmen alone would riot <laughs> but these yeah. Hong Kong stunt people they were a different breed of people. Well, and also at that time, and I mean, this is part of what you see, too, in kind of like the wave of action films as they kind of move from country to country is that back then there were very little rules in terms of what you could do and nobody would insure anyone either. As Hong Kong, as the Hong Kong industry grew, there were some rules that came in and and safety things and the cinema style of action changed a little bit, but then, you know, you move over to Korea or Malaysia or Vietnam or some other place where the 
the kind of the laws protecting stunt people are not really there. So you look at some early Korean stuff and you're going like, wow, like they're doing what Hong Kong was doing 10 years ago. And part of that change in like where the craziest action films are coming from is like, where are there no rules protecting these people, you know? And then as the rules kind of come in, their action kind of gets dialed down a little bit. There's still, you know, a lot of talented people making films, but there is a real reason why some of those films could be as crazy as they were. And, you know, part of that is like what they were allowed to do. And you can see that kind of moving around through these Asian countries where here's the craziest thing going on now. And then you start to think about it and go, there's an interesting documentary, um, Action Voice, about Korean stuntmen. And they talk about how there were just no rules protect. There were no laws and there were no anything protecting them. So, Filmmakers could do just about anything. And, you know, as that kind of changed, the ability for them to do as crazy a stuff as they did kind of changed a little bit. You talked about the musical influence on A Better Tomorrow, and that definitely is there in the score as well. Just the motifs that come up, the whole idea of Mark's theme, which uh, the Chow fat character, and just that's interesting to me because that kind of, speaking of no rules, that was one of those great things about Hong Kong cinema back in the day was copyright be damned. We don't care about copyright, and we'll lift somebody else's music directly and put it in our movie. Now, there is a great Joseph Koo score for A Better Tomorrow, but whenever they want this real extra oomph for the Mark character, they bring in Peter Gabriel's theme from uh, Birdie, the Alan Parker film. Birdie's Flight, I think is the name of the track, and it just has this great like flute noise that comes into it and it just it puts your your hairs on edge on your on your arm and it's just amazing that they use that and they integrate it so well with the score because there's like the better tomorrow theme that goes throughout mm-hmm. the rest of it there's Leslie Chung's uh canto pop version of it that plays at the end but yeah whenever Birdie's theme comes on for Mark it's just like wow shit's about to get real does also carry that kind of John Woo sentiment with it. Like, you know, just when they're kind of looking at each other and there's this kind of nostalgia welling up in them, you're going to get those strains of music. It's almost, it kind of, when I was watching them again, I had this little hint of like, oh, I remember how that Shire music keeps coming up and the Lord of the Rings films every time, like they all start looking at each other and and remembering back to, you know, when they were at the Shire and it was all safe and good. And, you know, these guys are, most of these characters in Better Tomorrow, in the various incarnations that they had, there's always this kind of nostalgic looking back and longing for when they were kids and when things seemed so much simpler and better and and they were all such good friends. And when things start to go sour, you get those hints of whether it's in the music or in an actual flashback or a photograph that pops up or something like that. But there's always this kind of like nostalgic longing for that time when everything was seemed better for them. Was there's a typical Wu thing where 
we are killing our elders. You know, the Kit and uh, T-Lungs, or, or, or sorry, I keep screwing up on the names because I keep calling them by the actors' names, but yeah. Leslie Chung and T-Lungs' father in the film mm-hmm. uh, ends up being dying in here, and Leslie Chung holds T-Lung accountable for it. That father figure, or that literal father, is gone, and then the father figure of the older gangster, that's definitely, there's a lot of disrespect going on there, and I think there is a murder of the gangster father figure later on in the film. That whole idea of getting rid of the older generation, and especially not showing uh, any sort of respect to the older generation, mm-hmm. uh, is one of those things that we're going to see again and again in these films. And I do have to say, I brought up Xing Fuan uh, earlier, uh, who increased his role every time that John Woo was making one of these films. Like, he's in the background in A Better Tomorrow. He's much more prominent in A Better Tomorrow 2. And then he's full on, like, the big baddie in The Killer. And he is always such a pleasure to watch. Mm-hmm. And he was in a movie, oh, what was that called? Like, was it Demon Hunter? Oh, I can't remember the name of it. But his character's name was Fierce. And that's <laughs> always the word that I think of when I see this guy. Because he's just got, like, the most mean look in the world even though he could play comedy like nobody's business like he plays in a movie that was kind of influenced by a better tomorrow called my hero with Stephen chow and he's there cracking jokes with Stephen chow he always is the butt of the jokes which is terrific <laughs> but he is he's wonderful in that movie i want to say he was on tiger on beat too with chow yun fat he might be the one having the, oh. the uh, chainsaw fight at the end but yes, it's been a long time so. since i've seen that you bring up tiger on the beat That was such an interesting film for me to watch because I don't know if you remember how it begins, but it begins with him dealing with this hostage crisis, Chow Yun-Fat's character, who is a cop. I can't remember exactly why it happens, but he pisses his pants (laughs) in like the opening scene, like early on in the film. And I can't remember if the, the, the kidnapper like dares him to do that or like demeans him by saying like, I want to see you pee in your pants, whatever it was. He peed in his pants, and then he becomes the outright hero of the film. And I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, an American film? I can't imagine Bruce Willis allowing his character to, like, pee his pants in the opening scene so that that's kind of the first impression you get of his character. Like, Hong Kong films and Asian films, it always seems like they want to subject these heroic characters or the character that you're you're going to be attached to the most to like the most demeaning thing or the most brutal beating or like they have to get pushed down far enough so that like there's this bigger arc for them to go and especially like a lot of Jackie Chan's key in this where he has to get beat to crap in the films by the bad guys before he finally gets his chance to, like, settle the score. But it's almost like they want to bring him down as far as they can. So we're like, ah, no. And then you have to wait, like, this long time to get the satisfaction. And sometimes you don't always get the satisfaction. But but I just remember Tyragon the Beat really struck me as like, wow, I just can't see them making that film in the United States. Like, they... I just can't see a studio saying, like, yeah, it's okay for our sexy action hero to pee his pants in the opening scene and then have, like, a massive fight with a chainsaw at the end and, you know, be the hero. Like, it just seemed like they wouldn't do it here. And it was – 
it was great. Like, and, and that's what Hong Kong action films are like so often is you just kind of go like, wow, I haven't seen that before. <laughs> There's got to be a name for that whole idea of the big beatdown. Because as yeah. you're saying that, I'm thinking of like Toshiro Mifune in Yojimbo. And then, mm-hmm. of course, you know, it's right there in A Festival of Dollars as well. But then even like, um, you know, Mark gets the shit kicked out oh, of him in this God. movie. And oh, man, that the the sweat in on his hair when it just like is flying and in front of the neon signs yes. and stuff and Ugh. when when Wise Lee punches Chalion Fat in the face and then all that blood comes pouring out of his nose oh jeez so yeah. good but yeah that that whole idea of we're going to take our hero to as low as he possibly can yes. get and then come back from that and I guess Chalion Fat kind of gets that as well in um what was that one that Ringo Lamb did um full contact which then basically kind of informs Hard to Kill where he comes back and gets revenge. Yeah, Full Contact was amazing. Full Contact is one of my all-time favorite movies. That film, and Simon Yam is in that too, as, oh, like, he's so bad. You just hate him so much. But uh, that was an amazing film. I think that's the only Ringo Lamb film I actually like a lot. I remember telling Chai Fat when I interviewed him that that was one of my favorites, and he looked at me and he was like, why? People are so mean in that movie. <laughs> well, yeah, that's one of the reasons why it works. And then those crazy, like, yeah. bullet POV shots that they have. <laughs> oh, that was so over the top. And ju- and the characters were great in that, too. And Simon, yeah, because he's also, he gets he gets to play kind of the good guy in Bullet in the Head. But he is an amazing actor as well. Just so charismatic on screen, even when he's bad. When he's bad and hard-boiled, he's so bad, but you cannot take your eyes off of him. And even though you you want him to, you know, you want to get revenge on him, you also kind of don't want him to exit the film too soon or anything. You're like, yeah, we hate what he's doing to the character, but he's so much fun to watch. There's the almost uneasy comedy. I mean, it's interesting how the film mixes comedy with action, especially in the beginning, which I think really helps because it helps disarm you. You're not going to know those the kind of like we were saying, the depths of of how far we're going to go with the action and with the violence when we have those lighthearted moments at the beginning with the Leslie Chung or sorry, Leslie yeah, Leslie Chung character and uh, Emily Chu characters, and you know her audition yeah. and playing the 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 stringed instrument. I'm uh, I'm not sure if it's a viola or, or uh, bass Shall or whatever, but oh, yeah. it's just like those moments are so light and so fluffy, Goofy. and then to I go mean, from that, goofy. <laughs> yes, yes. Like physical comedy, like you know, slapstickish comedy of dropping things and tripping over things and falling and, you know, and the music too is this very kind of goofy, lighthearted. Yeah, it's it's this kind of like, ha ha ha, we're going to fool you. Right. <laughs> Little do you know what's coming. I was listening to the commentary, the Bay Logan commentary, and he was talking about the scene where they're fighting against the, the one guy um, uh, who comes in to kill uh, the father character and it's like well if you put goofy music under this this could play out as comedy because it's like she keeps trying everything to best this guy and the point where she comes up with the knife and then she can't 
get him, you know, can't stab the guy. And I was just like, yeah, that is very similar to something that might happen in like a Jackie Chan film where somebody <laughs> might have, you know, uh, Maggie Chung might have a, a vase and she's going to bust it over the guy's head, but then she can at the last minute when he looks at her. But in this one, instead of it being played for comedy, when he slaps the shit out of Emily Chu, it's just like, mm-hmm. oh man, it is on. This is not funny at all. And I'm just waiting for her to pick up that uh, pot of boiling water that she had going on the stove and take care of business. <laughs> but yeah. this guy's unstoppable. The tone of the scenes with her character is always kind of odd. It really, but, and, and that may also stem from, I'm not sure how comfortable John Woo is with female characters. You know, I mean, I don't think he's like a misogynist or anything like that. I just don't think he feels like he knows them that well. And his interest and his kind of empathy is much more with these male characters. And I think he feels more comfortable creating that world. And I know there was sometimes the dividing line between the films. I I get blurred. But I oh, no, it's definitely the second film because she's pregnant. There's kind of the goofy moment where, you know, she thinks her husband's having an affair and He's really working undercover. It's Kit, the Leslie Chung character. And he's been working undercover and kind of like leading on this girl pretending she's his girlfriend. And he brings her home. (laughs) It's just this like sitcom kind of situation where, hey, honey, here's my girlfriend. I'm bringing home to stay here because we need to keep her safe. And and you're kind of, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's kind of – my son was watching with me and he's like – isn't there like some sort of protocol about like cops shouldn't bring home the you know the person they're working undercover to kind of you know the female characters always and I don't know if it's because he just doesn't know quite what tone to take with them she's kind of the comic relief in the film yeah that whole scene of her with her birthday cake and her yeah. turning off the power for the entire apartment and then when the light goes on when he <laughs> turns on the lamp and she's just pouts you know it's like yeah this is really comedic scene a lot of this movie comes from an earlier film i can't remember what year it came out i want to say late 60s called story of a discharged prisoner and in that there were actually more female characters but then when Wu did the adaptation he changed a lot of those female characters to male characters and i think that was to play a quote you know the brotherhood aspect Mm -hmm. but then also yeah because he didn't necessarily know what to do with some of these yeah, I was. Thank you for introducing me to that film because I did not know that it had been the inspiration for the Wu film, and I was surprised when I watched it how many more female characters there were and how more important they were to the the plot. Plus, it opens with the most amazing Batgirl pop music. Oh God! Nightclub scene when that started. I was hooked. I was going like, where is this coming from? This is insane. And the score to that film is just killer. Yeah. Yeah. I wish that there was a better version of that available because that movie needs to be seen by more people. It is just – it. I was amazed by it. And the character, the the guy on the cart, who I think kind of informs Mark a little bit uh, when Mark is disabled, mm-hmm. but he's such a great character. And when they push him down the stairs, oh, my God. And that film, it, it, it's interesting, too, because I think that was made in the in the 60s, which is was when there was a lot of 
social unrest going on. And that film seemed to have more of kind of a social consciousness, something that Wu would have more of in Bullet in the Head. But he didn't carry over kind of that kind of social consciousness to his better tomorrow. I mean, there was more this sense of kind of like criticism for the system, not quite helping these people who were poor or disaffected or didn't have other choices for, you know, what they could do with their lives. And that seemed more key to that film when it came out. Uh, and like I said, the, you know, Wu's social consciousness is much more prevalent in Bullet in the Head. I think there would have been more of the taxi shop from A Better Tomorrow had he been a little bit more socially conscious. This whole idea, and they play it up in one scene, but I think that he could have really taken it farther, that when T. Lung comes in after having been in prison in Taiwan for all these years, and he comes in to get this job, and there's the the guy who's running the uh, the taxi stand, Ken, um, who's played by uh, Kenneth Chang, and he starts giving him a hard time and starts talking about like the letter of reference that he provided or the reference. And he's just like, Oh, that guy's no good. And he starts just like really busting his balls. And then eventually you've, you know, and, and he calls him out. He's like, you haven't been away on business. You've been in prison. And he just like really starts, you know, getting on him. And then eventually it comes out that everybody in the shop has been in prison, including him. Mm-hmm. And now this is kind of like your fresh start. And, you know, we're really going to do this up well. And, and then we, see a happy t-lung driving his taxi i think that could have been that could have been a movie unto itself yeah yeah and there's definitely you know hints of the of that kind of awareness but again i think it's just where was his interest at the time and i think he was really deeply entrenched in that whole sense of loyalty and brotherhood and and really that term heroic bloodshed is is key to kind of understanding John Woo's feelings about all this, because one of the things he mentioned when I interviewed him and talking about casting Chow Yun-Fat is he talked about, I was looking for this modern knight, somebody who could stand up for justice. And he actually mentioned that he says, like, I saw that Chow Yun-Fat did work with orphans. And he says, that's what I was looking for. You know, I wanted somebody who had this good heart to him. And he wants these characters to have this certain kind of heroism and also this sense of, like, chivalry. I mean, there's this sense of kind of old-school honor, and that heroic bloodshed is really very John Woo. I mean, it, that term may be applied to other films, but other filmmakers didn't quite get it the same way that he did. And I mean, it seems just deeply entrenched in his DNA in terms of how he kind of creates the characters and the films and the violence and that sense of, you know, having somebody who betrays you to kind of be part of the key element in the plot. That term just so fits him. There's another film from the late 60s that uh, informed some of A Better Tomorrow, though I think some people have kind of blown it out of proportion, and that's the 1965 version of Once a Thief. And the reason why I say 1965 version is because then a few years after A Better Tomorrow, John Woo would make a film called Once a Thief. Now, it is not a remake. Uh, it is the Once a Thief the Wu film is very much a comedy, whereas Once a Thief 1965 is much more of a drama film. Mm-hmm. And it, But it kind of sets up some of the same things, having a 
former con who's trying to stay on the right side of the law and his brother um, who's played by Jack Palance is on the wrong side of the law. The guy who's trying to stay on the right side of the law is somebody that you mentioned already, Beth, Elaine Delon, mm-hmm. and just the, kind of their conflict going back and forth. And really, there's one character in here played by John Davis Chandler who to me, he kind of speaks to a character trope that we're going to get in Wu films later on, which is the mysterious man in the sunglasses. Mm-hmm. And we get him, I think he first makes his appearance in a Wu film in A Better Tomorrow 2, but in um, he's not necessarily in A Better Tomorrow 1. But there's a lot of shots of this uh, John Davis Chandler's character who wearing these dark sunglasses. He's got this amazing dyed blonde hair and he is such, he, he basically takes over the movie. He is so good. He, I mean, Van Heflin is really good as this dogged inspector. He kind of reminds me of Sterling Hayden in Crime Wave, where he knows that you know the main character is in the wrong, and he's going to do everything that he can to possibly prove that he's in the wrong, whether the guy's in the wrong or not. And he's put in this bad situation and you know forced to do things because of a kidnapping. I can't say that I necessarily really liked Once a Thief 1965, Mm -hmm. but there were some interesting moments, and then I thought it was interesting, too, that DeLon was in there. I think for me, and I like Anne-Margaret usually, but Anne-Margaret, oh my god, is she shrill in that film. (laughs) She reminded me, going back to A Fistful of Dollars, she reminded me of that horrible kid who is always like, no, mama, mama, no, throughout the entire film, and you just want to strangle him. (laughs) But yeah, the, you you bring up Alan Delon, and uh, I mean, there is a real kind of lineage, I think, between him and Chow. I mean, they yeah. they have this same sort of physicality on the screen where they're just really gorgeous to look at, but they also have this ability to move that lends them to these kind of action sequences where you just kind of are hypnotized by the way they move on camera. They just... There's something about them that is hypnotic, and they do share this kind of screen lineage that is very uh, fitting. So that the, those two films, even if they're not exact remakes or anything, you can totally see where Chow could have watched those and said, "Like, oh, oh yeah." Well, then of course the whole Lay Samurai, the killer connection. Oh yeah. Is- especially that opening of, of Les Samurai. But with, I won't get into that too much. We should probably concentrate more on A Better Tomorrow. And yes, sir. I don't, don't – no, no, no. I'm not – that's not a criticism. I really – I don't want to talk about the end of the film. But when we talk about heroic bloodshed, this is where the bloodshed comes into it, as well as the heroism. And that whole idea that you were saying as far as being very close to the violence mm-hmm. as opposed to shooting somebody you know, 10, 20, 30 feet away – that's definitely part of this as well. And these are more of these images that just stay with you for the longest time. I mean, we had, um, and again, a nice echo to the beginning of the film. We had T. Long in this white suit when they go to Taiwan, when he and Waisali go to Taiwan. And then at the end, here's Waisali in the white suit again. And it's like the white suit is the suit of power almost. And him... 
you know, telling uh, T-Lung that I've got money and because I've got money, you're going to go to jail and I'm going to go free within three days. You know, money can turn black, black to white and white to black. And things are really going to go to shit for your brother because I'm going to get out of prison. And when he goes over and he starts to put his hands up to surrender, mm-hmm. I mean, that is one of those images that is in my head. That's right there with uh, James Cromwell at the end of LA Confidential, you know, putting his mm-hmm. hands up. Show me your badge so they know you're a police officer. The ending of that, that was such a shocker when I saw it the first time. And I wanted to replay the scene because I felt like at the end I was going like, hmm. Did I? No, like that really just happened. And it was it was a real that was a real shocker. And I can imagine audiences seeing that and being taken aback by how the the turn at the end of that. So A Better Tomorrow was a huge hit. And what better to do with a huge hit but make a sequel? And we've talked about this before. We talked about it on the Highlander episode, uh, where you're going to want to make Highlander 2. Now, I can't say A Better Tomorrow is as bad as Highlander 2. And I have to say, going back to it over the last couple of weeks, I've watched it twice now. And it is way better than I remember it being back in the early 90s when I watched it the first time. I thought it was absolute dog shit back then, <laughs> except for – one part and that one part is the end of the film Mm -hmm. because when we talk about bloodshed yes oh my goodness and the ballet of violence and the the last heroic bloodshed yes oh man the last what is it 20 minutes of the film is basically an all-out gunfight Mm -hmm. sorry gunfight and and swords and axes yeah, a katana. <laughs> he gets a katana. My son was just, we were watching. He's like, what? What? Like, where did that come from? It, yeah, that's amazing. And and yeah, I mean, it's definitely not nearly as, as good as A Better Tomorrow. But there's still so many elements to it that are appealing that it's still a, a great watch. Yeah, the Dean Sheck character... Uh, who, Dean Check, who was one of the producers of, I believe he was a producer of A Better Tomorrow, um, and had been around for a long time uh, as both a producer and an actor. And his role, he's he's not the baddie in this. He's kind of like the police think that he's a baddie, but then he's actually a very noble person. He's kind of gotten out of things, and Leslie Chung is investigating him now. And even T. Lung, when T. Lung gets out of prison at the end, after the end events of Better Tomorrow 1, he's investigating him as well. And then through a series of crazy events, he thinks that uh, he has shot some people. And uh, but he hasn't shot them. And then he goes on the lamb and he goes to America and then some more bad things happen and he basically loses his mind. But luckily, there's somebody in America who's going to take care of him. And that is Chow Yun-Fat, who is back in this movie, even though spoilers for Better Tomorrow 1, even though he died in A Better Tomorrow 1, he's back as his twin brother, Ken, in A Better Tomorrow 2. I know. That was just so crazy. Which, I, whenever somebody uh, dies in a movie or a TV show or something and somebody goes like, wow, you know, that's that's a shame. We'll never see them again. And I always go like, wait, 
you never know. I know Chayanne Fat came back from Better Tomorrow, so there's always hope that you can resurrect a character. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, never let it be said. Dead is never dead in a movie. No. Now, I was re-watching this movie a couple weeks ago, and I didn't realize that I was watching the Mandarin dub of it. <laughs> so we get to the introduction of Chow Yun-Fat, who's running this restaurant in New York. And these gangsters come in, and they're looking for protection money, and Chow Yun-Fat starts talking with them. And my favorite scene is suddenly changed. I'm just like, what is going on? Um, he's speaking to them in Mandarin. And I didn't realize that he was speaking in Mandarin. I thought he was speaking in Cantonese because uh, my mind was just attenuated to it. And then, and I'm just like, what's going on? Where's Chow Yun-Fat's famous American accent? Because that scene is something that I still quote from today, <laughs> the Cantonese version of the film, which includes the English uh, version of this scene. Oh, my goodness. Him doing kind of a Robert De Niro-esque. Yes, De Niro-esque. What's the matter with you? You got a big problem? Huh? You don't like my rice? You don't like my rice? What are you talking about? What's wrong with the food? It is beautiful for me. You want to try some? No? Huh? For you, rice is nothing. But for us, rice just like my father and mother. Don't fuck with my family. Huh? Huh? Are you a big fan of, of Chalian Fat's rice? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that Chai and Fat talks about a lot is he really loves comedy. He yeah. loves doing – I mean I think I had asked him like who are your favorite actors and he, his response when I had asked him was, do you know Mr. Bean? Like Mr. Bean is amazing and, and he was like, I would love to do something like that. So he's got and, – and there are some comedies that he's actually been in and he's very funny but he does – I think he does enjoy kind of like taking things to a certain comedic level sometimes and engaging in, in certain kind of very broad physical or facial comedy, which comes into play here a couple times. It was funny. I was talking about this movie to uh, Maurice Brzezinski, who's been on the show before. And as soon as I brought it up, he goes, do you like my rice? <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, we reference this fact of, like, the characters having to be kind of degraded or something. But in this particular scene, he eats his own rice off the floor just to prove how good well, his rice is. Rice is like mother and father. But to yes. Americans, it's a joke. Yes. Oh, my God. And talk about so accents. Good. Those, those, those actors playing the real Americans, like... <laughs> They sound so bad as well. That's how I knew today when I was rewatching A Better Tomorrow 1 that I was watching – again, I had screwed up and I was watching the Mandarin version. But as soon as they got to the part with the American gangsters in that and I'm understanding what they're saying in Mandarin, I was just like, wait a second. There's no way that they that they dubbed these guys in Cantonese. This, they're speaking English so that I had to fiddle with the audio tracks and go, OK, yeah, now I know. I didn't realize I was watching the Mandarin version – of A Better Tomorrow 2 until they're throwing all those hand grenades at Chow Yun-Fat, like, and he's putting them in the, the liner of his jacket, uh -huh. and he just goes, Gola! And I'm like, oh, I know what that means. That means enough. And then I was like, wait, shit, I'm watching Mandarin. <laughs> I'm watching Cantonese. Well, and for people who don't understand, Mandarin and Cat Cantonese are both Chinese, but 
they have to be translated for the other audience. So it's two very distinctly different dialects, and there's a difference in the prints when they're made that depending on where they're being shipped out to and where they're going to screen, that they will be different. But, you know, somebody who speaks Cantonese does not necessarily speak Mandarin and somebody who speaks Mandarin does not necessarily understand Cantonese. So, which is why if you see some of the old like Hong Kong VHS tapes and stuff and you see English subtitles and Chinese characters, that's the reason for it is that the Chinese audiences might not understand the particular language that it was being screened in. So, And that's why we as Americans got the benefit from this, is <laughs> a benefit from Hong Kong cinema was because since it was Hong Kong and it was a British protectorate mm-hmm. while they were making these movies, it was law that you had to have English subtitles on there. Now, did they have to be good English no. subtitles? No. No. Did they have to be accurate? No. no. One of the things I remember from the from those early, like the 80s uh, Hong Kong films, was those subtitles fly at you so fast. Like people talk so fast, especially if it's like a Stephen Chow film. They come at you so fast and they're sometimes really bad. And so you're reading and you're trying to keep pace. And then you also have to like go in your head and try to retranslate to figure out what was really meant in the subtitle. So some of those just came at you and I would have to watch them like a couple of times before I would get some of the plot points because I'm going like, I can't can't keep up. Like the titles go too fast. They're up for two seconds and there's two full lines of dialogue on there. I don't know necessarily why this happened, but when I was in Shanghai, I was looking through the movie listings and I saw a Better Tomorrow was playing. And I was just like, you have to be kidding me. Why is A Better Tomorrow playing? And it wasn't just playing at one theater. It was playing in theaters all over Shanghai. And it's like, well, this is, it's 2017. So it's not like the, however many years, you know, 40th anniversary of of A Better Tomorrow. Uh, I don't know if it's because his latest film came out just shortly thereafter, but his latest film, uh, which was uh, Manhunt, that came and went to theaters while I was there. But even when I left, there were still theaters that were playing A Better Tomorrow. And that opened up, I want to say, sometime in November, I think. But again, I got to benefit. I I was like, well, I'm going to go see this theatrically, whether they have English subtitles or not. And But luckily... They kept it. They showed it in the Cantonese version, and it so then it had the um, simplified Chinese subtitles plus the English subtitles, which mm-hmm. I was very happy that they did. But these subtitles were even worse than I remember. Like there was one point where the guy was supposed to say, or somebody was supposed to say, "I will," and instead of that, it just said "I'll," which is weird, you know, like the contraction form. And it was just like you don't shout like "I'll," you say "I will," you know. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody was a little overzealous with that. But uh, yeah, that was it, it's so great to see a better tomorrow once again on the big screen. Oh, and yeah. to see it in China, I was so excited. And I kind of wish that they had, had like, you know, the whole better tomorrow one, two, and maybe three. And I hadn't. Until we decided to do this episode, I had never seen A Better Tomorrow 3. I had oh, just really? avoided it for whatever reason. But it has Anita Moy in it. And she's got I know, two but guns. it's Choi Hark directing. And I know. I, me and Choi Hark, we just don't get along that well for whatever Aww. reason. 
I think it's because so there was a there was a feud that happened years ago that that I don't even know what caused it or whatever, but it ended up that Joy Hark ended up doing a Better Tomorrow three, and even though I think he and John Wu wrote it, and then Wu went off and did bullet in the head and it's really interesting to watch those two films back to back because there are so many similarities between Mm -hmm. them but one is now i I can't even say that a better tomorrow three is uh, a direct prequel because it's like the character who's supposed to be t lung isn't the t lung character it's just really kind of weird you know Mm -hmm. so like we get Mark again, and he's back to being Mark. Chow Yun-Fat is in it, and he's back to being Mark because he's not dead yet. Right. Prequel. Um, yeah. But then – and it kind of echoes a little bit of bullet in the head of them going to Saigon right. and having all these adventures trying to make money off of the war. But then really becomes the Anita Mui film, and yeah. I'm glad for that because I love her. Well, and I think Choi Hawk was more comfortable with female characters and yeah. and didn't have issues with centering films around women characters. And so, you know, she gets to be, as she's been in other films, the kick-ass action hero. And you could say, you know, she's the one who taught Mark how to shoot two guns or, you know, have his particular style. It, it's kind of, I mean, it's almost like Choi Hawk going back and going like, all right, I'm going to like kind of change the mythology of this a little bit and throw in some a female character to say that she kind of showed him the ropes or that she kind of you know laid the groundwork for what he was going to be later in the the uh, better tomorrow film but yeah it's i mean it's it's a very different film cuz Choi and and John Woo are very different filmmakers so it's a very different kind of film and you don't get that that sense of the brotherhood and the loyalty and the betrayal in, in the same way that you do with John Woo. It's a different emotional tone to it. And then the biggest thing of them drinking piss wasn't in it either, was it? Oh, in, in yes, nobody drinks piss in, in Better Tomorrow 3. but Which is bizarre. Because that's like the only thing we know from then, because he talks about it in the first film. And then it doesn't happen. But then it does happen in Bullet in the Head to mm-hmm. essentially a different character, though he could end up being Mark. But I don't really think that he's going to end up being Mark. No, no. Bullet in the Head is what is what John Woo made when he couldn't make Better Tomorrow 3. So right. I think, you know, he took whatever elements he felt he really wanted to deal with and put them in that film. And or, you know, and I, I don't know what kind of laws they have there in terms of like ideas and sharing, you know, and what they had written prior to that split that might have been shared. But yeah, it. I mean, Toy Hawk, I think, is like he's not that interested in those kind of really gut-wrenching questions. He's more interested, I think, in a much more kind of popular entertainment film. And I mean, I happen to enjoy a lot of his stuff. He's he's done some some good work that's a lot of fun to watch, but it's very different from John Woo. And there's not that kind of emotional grounding that you get and kind of that emotional complexity of characters that are have these tangled lives together. I mean, he's much more kind of on the surface in in that respect. And Better Tomorrow 3 is much more of just a straight ahead action film with a little bit of social consciousness. Bullet in the Head, like I said, is probably 
one of my favorite woos, though I, it didn't make the top three, but it's it's up there. Mm-hmm. And I've been kind of obsessed with it for a lot of years because I remember watching it the first time, probably 92, 93, something like that. And then I watched it again a few years later, and the most famous scene, the whole piss drinking scene, was gone from the movie. And I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? And I went through this whole period. I am looking over at my video shows right now, and I probably have about seven different versions of A Bullet in the Head. Because I went through and found every version that was for sale at the time, VCD, Laserdisc, shitty VHS versions, DVD versions, and just pulled all these things together and said, I need to find that original version. And I want to see that compared to others. And so what I ended up doing was going through all of these things, finding like the two or three best versions of them, and then making, essentially making a fan edit of them and running the two tracks parallel. Like here's the, what I consider the original version. And then here's like a nicer print of it and then kind of fading in and out. So you can kind of see where the differences are. And it's amazing. Like the, the, I guess maybe it was the Taiwanese cut or something or whatever this was, but like even the opening credits, there's more stuff in the opening credits. There's more of the dance studio where you get to see Tony Lung in the dance studio. And it's just like, why is this? Why is there such a difference between these? And then, yeah, the piss drinking scene was in that version. And it's so bizarre that they like going back and watching it without the piss drinking scene where they just cut around it. You're like, why are these guys so mad? (laughs) And I think I saw it without that scene the first time. And it, it was one of those things where I was like, that didn't make a whole lot of sense there. And again, this guy I had met at this, uh, you know, Hong Kong Laserdisc store was the one who would be like, ah, well, you know, you got to know that this is missing and this is missing from, you know, the cut that you got to see. And I was like, damn, I need to find the other version then. Yeah. Bullet in the Head, I describe it to people as John Woo's Deer Hunter meets Treasure the Sierra Madre. Yeah. And I think more Deer Hunter for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. feels, yeah. There's not the the box of gold in the deer hunter, if memory serves. But but that's the only thing. You get to see (laughs) wisely go full-on Fred C. Dobbs in this movie. And wow, uh, pretty amazing. And yeah, we're back with wisely. We've got Tony Lung in here, who we'll see in Hard Boiled. Mm -hmm. And then Jackie Chung, who is just – he is terrific in this as well. It's just such a – uh, uh, man, he's got such a good heart, yeah. and to see him getting you know beat over the head with the shoes at the beginning, and then beat over the head with the bottle, and then you know what's coming—the titular bullet in the head is coming uh, later on—and it's like, oh man, he just Wu really knew what the fuck he was doing with this one. And then who was it? Simon Simon, Simon Yam, Yam. Mm-hmm. as uh, basically that Elaine Delon character coming back in here. This He's this kind French, of injection yeah. of of romance and uh, maudlin sentiment that happens. Oh, I wouldn't call it maudlin. <laughs> well, maudlin in the best sense <laughs> of the right, word. All right, all right. But yeah, that that film was so and. Tony Lung is such a good actor, too. Oh, and yeah. he's done a lot of films with Wong Kar Wai where mm. there's a lot of scenes without dialogue. And 
He's got, and, and this comes up in, in Hard Boiled too, his eyes are amazing. Like he is just able to communicate so much without any dialogue. And you can just read so much into him. And it's particularly true in, I, I don't know if I should, well, we're doing spoilers, so people have been warned. But uh, in Hard Boiled, he's um, a deep undercover cop and he's grown attached to the gangster he works for. And mm. at a certain point, he has to kill him. And oh. it's silent. Like, he, he's told to do it, and he goes to do it. And he's got this, like, long walk. That I can't remember. He walks to the camera or the camera follows him. But all you're seeing is his eyes. And he's not saying anything. And he kills the guy. And he, like, walks by the guy who told him to kill him. And he smiles like, see, I did it. And like in just the amount of time it takes him to turn away from that guy, like his eyes well up with tears. And you just, oh. you know, like every emotion that's gone through him and you sense, you understand like how difficult this was and how morally repugnant it was and how he can't see any way. All of this in a really short span of time with no dialogue and he does the he he has similar scenes none as quite as focused as that but he's got similar scenes in bullet in the head and he just has this ability to communicate with his eyes that is i mean it's really amazing yeah oh yeah as soon as you said communicate with his eyes <laughs> i knew exactly what you're going to say because yeah that just that's amazing and hard boiled yeah well, when I had interviewed him, he talked about because I asked him, I said, you know, like, you really are good. And especially at the end, I had interviewed him when he was doing In the Mood for Love with Wong Kar Wai. Mm. And there's a whole, again, a sequence at the end with without dialogue that we have where we have to kind of understand something about his character. And when I talked to him about it, he said that he came from a broken family and oh. he didn't like to talk to others. And... It was kind of, it was like, he said like that, I had to learn how to communicate like without saying anything and without moving my body because um, we kind of had to, you know, just like connect with our eyes to communicate. And he said he felt very, you know, kind of repressed and, and restrained. And he thinks that that's part of what might have helped him learn how to communicate complex emotions uh, without dialogue or any or anything else because again it's not body language either i mean he's a very subtle actor compared like jackie chung is great in this and he's got this kind of um you know a bit over the top uh performance especially when he kind of goes crazy at the end but the contrast between the, between their two styles is, you know, he's very kind of low-key and quiet and minimalist, and Jackie Chung's kind of over the top. But, you know, that's what Tony Lung is really good at. And, you know, it's not as flashy, and it, it doesn't always get the same attention as some other performers, but he's so good. Well, at least Jackie Chung doesn't go as crazy as Dean Sheck does in A Better Tomorrow too. <laughs> He doesn't get food shoved down his face, too. You know? Oh, God. Uh, that that wears thin pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> Although you do get a scene, you do get a scene of, of uh, Chow Yun-Fat cooking, and he talks about the fact that he actually, like in real life, loves to cook. Like, that's one of the things he loves to do. So you get a feeling like maybe you got a little, little piece of, like, the real Chow on screen there. 
Well, I do like his rice. <laughs> Don't we all? Well, I can't think of a better place to uh, take a break here and uh, play a trio of interviews. I guess that's appropriate since we keep talking about these movies with trios <laughs> of heroes and trios of uh, where, where one person betrays. Hopefully, none of these people will betray uh, one of the other. But the first interview is with Professor Karen Fang, the author of the new Hong Kong cinema book, John Woo's A Better Tomorrow. The second is with Professor Kenneth Hall, the author of John Woo The Films. And finally, we'll hear from Barno William Donovan, the author of The Asian Influence on Hollywood Action Films. And we'll be back with all of those after these brief messages. You guys look like... What do they look like, Jimmy? Dorks. <laughs> they look like a couple of dorks. If you're looking for dorky, geek-filled content where you can nerd out over movies, television, comic books, and so much more, then you've come to the right place. The In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast is bringing geek-related content to you three times a week. Hey everyone, I'm the Turtle Dork here at Mod. On Mondays, we drop our Weekend Dork episode, which is a recap of sorts, where we discuss the most pertinent geek-related things we did in the previous week. Hi, I'm Wife Dork, and on Wednesdays, we drop our Homework Cast episode. Each week, the dorks take turns choosing a movie for the month's chosen dork to watch and review, like Heat, or Star Trek II, or Green Room. Howdy, I am the Mouth Dork. And finally, on everyone's favorite day of the week, we drop our Fistful Friday episode. Each Fistful episode is basically a top five list related to movies, comics, or some other geek-related topic. Because we all know at the end of the week, we need a little fist of Xander Cage. Hey, and I'm the Disco Dork. In addition to our regularly scheduled programming, we have special guests, film festival and comic convention coverage, interview episodes, and more. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Just search In the Mouth of Dorkness or It Modcast, where we are for the promotion and progression of geek culture. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses all things Grindhouse, Exploitation, Drive-In, and B-Movies. Your three hosts, Mike. We're, we're going to discuss the Rene Martinez-directed picture, the $6,000. What? Time, Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the name of the Super movie. Super Soul Brother. That's the name. When you yeah, start the movie. DVD cover. When you start the movie, the first thing that that's comes what up it is says. the title, and it says $6,000. Mark. And I've been around a girl stroking a horse's dick. Somehow, somewhere down the line, I'm going to use that clip against you. Shh. <laughs> Please do. And listener favorite, Iris. The deployment sock. And I'm like, deployment sock? What the fuck is a deployment sock? And goes, you know, you know that sock that you just use? Oh, my God. You guys are so gross. I come my <laughs> See, so it happens for real. People do come inside. We'll make you question your political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop Sunday and can be found by searching for BB and BC Podcast via iTunes, Lipson, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and everywhere else you can download quality podcasts from. 
You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at bbnbcpodcast.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. I'm Karen Fang, and I am Associate Professor in the Department of English at the University of Houston, where I teach literature and film studies. As you know, I've been writing about Hong Kong cinema for a long time, and um, that's one of the things that I teach at U of H, a very popular course. And I really think it's Hong Kong cinema is so great, not just because it's you know, such a prolific and diverse and, and deep cinema, but it's also really important because, you know, when it's one of the most successful cinemas outside of Hollywood, but it's also really important because it constantly teaches people to think outside of Western paradigms. How did you get involved with the Hong Kong film? What, what kind of brought you down that path? The short answer is when I was in graduate school doing my PhD in literature, my doctorate in literature, um, I was very interested um, in imperial history, and I was fascinated by Hong Kong as a city, and I knew a lot about Hong Kong history. And this was in '97. My school, my grad school, Johns Hopkins, which had a, has a really excellent media, film and media studies program. I think actually, I think Wes Craven is a graduate from there. Barry Levinson, he is a Baltimorean, and um, they're actually like big supporters right now of like this expanding media program at Johns Hopkins. But aside from that. So they had um, they had brought in a lecturer to teach a class on Hong Kong film, you know, to mark the reunification of Hong Kong and China in '97, and they asked me to TA it um, because I knew the history of Hong Kong. And you know, I was I've always been a visual person. When I was even younger, I thought I wanted to go work in the industry, and so it was just really easy for me to just start writing about uh, cinema and writing about Hong Kong film and. So I actually started publishing on Hong Kong film, I think, before I started publishing literary criticism and literary scholarship. Now, I know, of course, when Hong Kong was handed over in 97, but what's kind of the – I don't want you to have to give me the entire history, but when did it become a colony of Britain? The island of Hong Kong was seized – I think, and I don't, now you're going to like catch me in my <laughs> my like aging brain. You know, I think it was um, through the Opium Wars. I think the British colonists had first started uh, the traders first started arriving in like the late 1820s, and at this time China was pretty much closed to the West. Portuguese and Dutch traders were allowed to have certain outposts on the mainland, but Hong Kong itself, the island, was actually quite sparsely pop- populated, and the British Empire was very anxious you know, to have a way into the Chinese market because they wanted, of course, tea, silk, and porcelain. Um, And so Sir Stamford Raffles, uh, sort of one of the big mercantilist traders who sort of seized and founded Singapore, there's all of this is going on in the South China Sea at this time. And so the Opium Wars happened, and through the sort of settlement between Britain and China, uh, China seeds the island of Hong Kong, which allows Britain to have a trading post in a beachhead, essentially, into China. Pretty early 19th century legal act, and it doesn't really become the economic powerhouse that we know of Hong Kong to be, actually, until the second half of the 20th century. What kind of role did film production play in the economics of Hong Kong? 
Oh, it's always been an important part of Hong Kong since um, the 1950s. So there was always there was always a few people producing films from the sort of inception of the cinema. I mean, you know, we all know that cinema was actually sort of global phenomenon, right, when it was started at the um, invented at the end of the 19th century. So there's actually like a film that was shot in Hong Kong by a Russian filmmaker, like I think in 1910 around there. Um, but so in the first part of the 20th century, Shanghai um, had a very active uh, film production um, industry. So, you know, Shanghai, the Pearl of the Orient, the Hollywood of the East. So there were very accomplished filmmakers and, star, and a whole star system in Shanghai in the first part of the 20th century. And during, because of the turmoil in China with the rise of communism and the Second World War, the people in the Shanghai film industry fled because, you know, essentially they were, you know, they were essentially capitalists, right? And so they, and, you know, they, they were afraid of the economic turmoil and the sort of political transition. So many of them fled either to Taiwan or Hong Kong. And so that's why Taiwan and Hong Kong, the sort of um, nascent film industries really benefited from this talent flight. You know, this very similar to the um, German filmmakers who fled the Weimar Republic in advance of not, you know, the rise of Third Reich and landed in Hollywood, and Hollywood benefited from from Otto Preminger and, you know, Murnau and all of them. And what was your first exposure to John Woo? I think I'd always sort of been around it because, you know, Hong Kong film was distributed regionally throughout Asia. And so my parents are Taiwanese. You know, I think I'd always sort of seen them, you know, in the background, like when we would go to the Chinese cultural you know, center or something like that as a, as a young child. And I believe I actually saw the kill. I saw the killer when I was a tween and I just didn't get it at the time. But then, you know, when I was telling you in 97, when I was TAing this, this course on Hong Kong film, I, you know, quite frankly, I just had this, this revelation, you know, seeing Chow Yun-Fat in Hard Boiled. And, you know, you know, Hard Boiled is such a sort of like commercially Hollywood accessible sort of version of Wu, right? And so it was like this, you know, very masculine John Wu, like you're saying. Not, I mean, he is kind of like hamming it up, I guess, like with the babies and the big, you know, like firepower sequence in the end. But Hard Boiled was so legible as a big action movie of the of the nineties, uh, which clearly what it was, you know, what it was intended to be. And it was just revelatory for me as an Asian woman to see this really masculine, dynamic, charismatic Asian man and. So that was like the sort of moment in which I really got John Woo. <laughs> when did you first see A Better Tomorrow? Um, that year in that class, actually. Um, so I will always owe a debt to Reed Hessler, who is a local film critic and scholar, the person who was teaching the class. So he had put together the syllabus and he had done the research and he knew what the films were. And so he, A Better Tomorrow, I think, was one of the first films that we watched in that class. Hong Kong cinema is so varied. I mean, a lot of people will know it because of John Woo and Jackie Chan, but there's so much other stuff going on in there. So what other things did you see? That was the great age of Hong Kong cinema, right, in the 80s and the 90s. And so in 97, Reed um, sort of had, like, sort of, an, a, you know, awareness. He was a sort of you know, diehard movie buff and sort of knew the big highlight. So he had Hard Boiled and A Better Tomorrow. He had Stanley Kwan's Rouge, and I feel like we also watched Center Stage. He had Chunking Express. We had A Chinese Ghost Story, Peking Opera Blues, I think. We might, did we watch Bullet in the Head? I think we might have watched Bullet in the Head in that. We, we watched The Killer, of course, as well. I think it was a lot of woo. <laughs> 
he was in a way the sort of global ambassador for of, of Hong Kong film at that moment. What kind of impact did A Better Tomorrow have when it came out initially? So it was landmark film in Hong Kong cinema. It was a high, at the time of its release, it was the highest grossing Hong Kong film in history at that time. Um, the more remarkable thing, though, was the legs that the film had in this really fast-paced Hong Kong um, exhibition um, culture. Everyone knows that Hong Kong films, you know, like like Hong Kong sort of manufacturing in general is like fast and to the market and, and like somewhat derivative. And it's rare for films to last more than a couple weeks and it, at the time it was, I mean, it still is a, for, for popular for a film to last very long in the cinemas. So even a very successful film might at that time would have lasted about two and a half weeks in the cinemas. You know, bad films would maybe not see a third night. And so A Better Tomorrow played consistently in Hong Kong for nearly three months in the summer. It was released in August and played all the way in, through mid-October. So it was just unheard of in Hong Kong for a single movie to you know, last that long in the theaters. And so a sign of the sort of cultural phenomenon that it was. And of course, like, you know, the subject, it was registered among audiences, like um, young men started like copying the Mark Gore outfit of the trench coat and the sunglasses. They started like appropriating some of the lingo that kind of, um, it's a very colloquial kind of self-consciously um, uh, cosmopolitan repartee that he and Tai um, Ho have in the beginning of the film. And then, of course, in terms of the industry, it just produced this whole cycle of Ying Shong Pian, these hero films, hero stories is what it translates as, coming off of the Chinese title of the film, which uh, is sort of literally translates to, like, true colors or essence of the heroes. And so this sort of remarkable fusion of modern of urban gangster gunplay that's been shot through with this kind of traditional chivalric heroism and romanticism that was familiar from wuxia style films but you know now placed in this urban context with you know these armani dressed gangsters right produced like inspired this whole cycle of imitations and copycats so everybody for the next 10 years or so this idea of like the sort of gangster genre really becomes like one of the most sort of recognizable aspects of hong kong film can you tell me a little bit about some of the guys behind the movie? I mean, Wu, this was not necessarily his first action film, but he hadn't made a gangster film like this before. He was actually kind of in exile in the Taiwan industry. I think Cinema City had sent him there. So Cinema City is Troy Hark's um, production company. John Wu was a very – he had been in the industry from a very young age. I think he directed Hand of Death at 25. He had started, he'd worked very briefly at Cafe, which is a pretty successful commercial studio, and then very early had been taken up by the Shaw Brothers studio where he made Hand of Death. But so he was actually, he was very well known in the industry, was very um, established and credentialed by the mid-80s, around the time of A Better Tomorrow. His most recent films had not made money. Um, and so that's sort of why, like in Hollywood, you're only as good as your last film type thing. So he was having a hard time getting new projects. He and Troy Hark are very good friends. And Troy Hark is married to Nansen Shi, who is the brains, the business behind a business mind behind Cinema City. And so they essentially put together a deal for him to be in Taiwan, and he was just working on other films, you know, not really happy. I don't remember actually who brought them 
the idea of remaking Story of a Discharged Prisoner, the 1967 Long Kong film. Someone had the idea, and Wu sort of adapted the script. And he was the one who sort of thought, like, like, you know, let's change it to gangsters. One of the characters, is it the Ho character? Mark Gore's character? One of the characters actually was supposed to, was a woman, I think, in the original film. I talk about it in the book, but I, I'm embarrassed I don't remember who it was now. But he radically changes the original story. The story of a discharged prisoner, very typical of Cantonese film at that time, is very much interested in social realism. So the director, Long Kong, was it interested in. And so in Story of a Discharged Prisoner, there's much, the story is really about this idea of, you know, the convict assimilating back into regular life. And, you know, that was actually the intention behind A Better Tomorrow, that you had these two marquee stars, Tai Lung, who was so well known from the Wuxia films at Shaw, and then Leslie Chung, who's a huge pop star, who was also a, a sort of heartthrob. And, you know, although Chai Yan Fat was very well known as an a uh, TV actor at the time, he was not. He had not been successful in cinema, so no one really expected him to be the sort of idol that would come out of uh, come out of the film. But of course, that's what happened because in some because clearly the Mark Gore character under the sort of script changes that Wu introduced in terms of the story, you know, Mark Gore becomes the sort of vessel or the site of all of these sort of chivalric ideals that are so, we, all of us now, re- that we all recognize now as sort of being so, uh, so much a signature and, and John Wu style or themes. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, where Choi Hark was in his career? So Choi Hark was working in Hong Kong still. Like he was very, he, you know, he was, churning out movies then at that time as well. So, and then, of course, he, was, he had the production company with his wife. So that's why he had the ability to sort of, you know, start pushing stuff towards Wu at that time. Actually, just let me see. So around the same time, of course, he also had a movie. He also had a movie that was banned. Um, so, I mean, in the, deeply com- in the highly commercial Hong Kong film industry, very few movies actually get censored or banned. Right? <laughs> so it's uh, actually interesting that both Wu and, and Choi Hark had this experience. But Choi Hark was on a kind of, he was, had, a, had a lot of commercial success at that moment. So he'd had We're Going to Eat You, All the Wrong Clues. Zoo, Warriors from the Magic Mountain was a big success in 1983. Um, and then he had done Aces Go Places, um, which was a huge, um, huge commercial success. That might have been like with the top grossing maybe that year in 84 um, with these sort of action comedies. And so Choi, Hark, they had been friends for a long time, but he was at that moment before A Better Tomorrow, the one who was able to help his friend up. And, and you know, both of them, and but both of them talk all the time, especially with John Wu talks all the time about how in some ways that he feels the friendship between Mark Gore and Ho in A Better Tomorrow is um, surrogate or proxy representation of the friendship between him and Choi Hark, that Choi Hark was, you know, the friend who was pulling him up when he was down in the same way that Ho and Mark help each other. Do you think that they expected Leslie Chung to become the big star out of this rather than Chow Yun-Fat? 
Yeah, that was everyone's expectation. When movies were, uh, were packaged at that time, you know, there often was no script at all that somebody would just, either, you know, this whole mo- pro- like timeline into production was so fast in Hong Kong. And so people would just go to investors and say, look, I have this, this, this star who's available for these weeks. And so I think I'm going to do a romantic, I'm going to do a romantic comedy. Or I'm going to do crime film or something like that. And then people would say, okay, that's how long you'll make money. You know, and so when they, to have Leslie Chung at that time was, I mean, it was like having, I don't know, there's nothing really analogous in Hollywood, right? Because we are movie stars and music stars that move as, move back and forth as much, right? But it would be something you know, akin to like having a Justin Timberlake. And so the expectation was certainly that people would go see the film because there was a lot of goodwill and nostalgia about Tai, tai Lung, who had been around for so long and had been accustomed to carrying sort of wuxia films and that's certainly the the youth audience which is of course the um you know the primary audience for films so certainly would turn out for for leslie chung you know and that they thought that um chow yun fat was somebody was certainly a serviceable actor right but nobody expected him to be this phenomenon that he ended up becoming through this film i'm curious as you're writing about this film and researching this film does it change your appreciation of the movie as you're diving deeper into it yeah, I think I'm sure any scholar or writer would would say that you never really understand something until you write about it, you know. And so I think, you know, anybody who writes about film, I'm sure you probably feel the same way, right? Film is so powerful and it has produces such a strong affective response in you. And, and you know, the film scholar, the great American film scholar, David Boardwall, has written about Hong Kong action as saying that it, it moves him to feel that he's capable of doing things, right? That Hong Kong action has a sort of energy to it that Hollywood action doesn't have. And, you know, I think the thing about A Better Tomorrow or a John Woo film, right, is it's not just this, act, this incredible action choreography that, you know, this, that's so balletic and dynamic and, you know, and graphic, but also the way that, as I keep on saying, you know, the way that violence is only a part of this really operatic or melodramatic narrative about friendship or bro- and brotherhood and loyalty, right? And so it, it pulls at your heartstrings as well as your muscles, in a sense. How did the monograph of A Better Tomorrow come about for you? Well, so you know that you probably know the whole series, the new Hong Kong cinema series from Hong Kong University Press. And that series is based on, you probably know the BFI series, right? It's very um, sort of standard in film criticism, like these very short accessible volumes about important films in, in world cinema as the BFI series. And so Hong Kong University Press had this idea that like they were going to do the same thing for Hong Kong cinema because and it, it certainly deserves it. I mean, again, we're dealing with one of the most prolific, one of the most successful film industries and, you know, regionally um, dominant film industries outside of Hollywood. And so Hong Kong University Press had this idea of doing it, and they contacted me um, pretty early, you know, very early on. I mean, it, you know, when they were launching the series and asked me if I wanted to write on one of the films, and I said, well, yeah, and I want to, if no one else, you know, I was lucky that they asked me so early that I, I could pick A Better Tomorrow, which is such an important film for Hong Kong, the history of Hong Kong cinema. You always, when you're writing, I'm sure you, Will you talk a little bit in the book about how perceptions of the film changed as the handover became nearer and actually became a, a reality? Can you talk a little bit about that? 
one of the main themes or like ideas in my book on a better tomorrow is the difference between the sort of Western reception of a better tomorrow or John Woo in general versus the local reception in Hong Kong and, and actually sort of throughout Asia. Um, so what happened was in the West, people the West sort of learned about John Woo and Hong Kong film. Uh, learn about Hong Kong film and John Woo more specifically through this sort of like double path of festival distribution and also just sort of like cult fan clubs and video stories. So there was always this sort of like aware, like uh, awareness among film buffs, right, and scholars and critics of the vitality of Hong Kong cinema, and in in you know. Uh, by the late 80s and the early 1990s, there was a sort of breakthrough moment. And the moment is actually 1989 when The Killer was screened at the Toronto International Film Festival. I think Roger Ebert was in the audience. Or I don't remember who else. But there was just a lot of, there was a flurry of Western press in 89, specifically after The Killer's screening at TIFF. Um, and it sort of makes sense that there was this sort of discovery of a Hong Kong film at this moment, not just because The Killer is an amazing film and John Woo is an amazing director, but as I argue in the book that, you know, the West at that moment was really interested in the question of Hong Kong. In 1989, you know, the whole question issue, Tiananmen just had, had just happened, you know, the sort of crackdown by Beijing on the student protesters. And Hong Kong was already at this point poised to get back to China. Everybody had known since 1984 that by 1997, Hong Kong was going to go back to China. And the world was fascinated in this question because in some ways, Hong Kong was this anomaly, right? Like um, in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. So on the one hand, you had a world, the world was sort of moving towards decolonization and widespread democracy and capitalism instead of communism and colonial order. And instead what you had, but Hong Kong, it was actually, I think the per capita wealth in Hong Kong or like cash reserves or something, like it was actually um, more economically sound than Britain at the time. So it, it, this unusual phenomenon in which a colony is, is, has sort of more economic vitality than its colonial sovereign, um, and which is precisely why Britain wanted to hold on to it and also why China wanted it back. You know, Hong Kong film sort of benefited from, uh, there's a sort of perfect storm of global interest in the question of Hong Kong. And of course, an easy way to like learn about Hong Kong is right in through, through film, through one of its most visible exports. And so, and then of course, there's also the sort of very specific fact of the sort of impact of the action genre on global film through the 80s and the 1990s. So by the, you know, by the early 90s, the action genre is the most lucrative film genre in the world, right? And so if you have this one industry that's doing, uh, doing really interesting work in the most lucrative genre, and everybody knows how to watch a Hong Kong, watch, everybody knows how to watch an action film and how to appreciate an action film, that the moment was ripe for this profound interest in and appreciation of Hong Kong action films. And then, you know, in the hands of an actor like Wu, and, of, you know, the killer, right, is so stylized and, and so recognizably um, visionary um, for film critics that Wu, that there was all of this interest in, and discussion of the killer, and that, of course, is and so people came to Wu through the killer rather than a better tomorrow, which of course is the way Hong Kong discovered Wu uh, three years earlier. 
as the handover was kind of getting closer and closer, I know Wu moved from Hong Kong over to Hollywood for at least a little while. Was there another exodus? You talked about the exodus from the mainland over to Hong Kong and to Taiwan. Was there another exodus from Hong Kong over to any other country after, uh, as the handover was getting closer? Yeah, certainly after Tiananmen. I mean, it, it, um, you know, it was it's, it was really interesting in Hong Kong. So in '84, when they announced the sort of the impending reunification, you know, it's a colony, right? And so if you're in a colony, a lot of times people don't necessarily have good feelings about being being in a colony. Of course, in Hong Kong, at the, by the 1980s, a lot of people had a very good quality of life, and many and pe- many people, Hong Kong is a city of immigrants, and so many people had landed in Hong Kong precisely because they were escaping capitalism in mainland China or Vietnam, you know, for its economic opportunity. So on the, you know, there, I, but I, I think there was still a lot of ambivalence in the mid eighties about whether the transition from Britain to China was going to be good, but certainly after, after Tiananmen, it looked pretty bad. And so what happened by ni- by the early nineties, is there was a huge uptick in emigration from Hong Kong, not, you know, from, by, People, everybody by by middle class and professional people, anybody with any means, they may not actually have left Hong Kong, but they were all seeking um, resources. They're putting their money elsewhere. They're trying to seek. They were seeking different passports. So obviously, um, they 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 would try to seek a British passport, an American passport, Australia and Canada as well, because those had easier immigration um, requirements at the time. So the Hong Kong film industry, you could say, was. Is merely symptomatic of what the population population as a whole was doing, right? What because I think not just John Wu and his producer Terence Chang, um, Mabel Chung, Peter Chan. There were so many, so many filmmakers, active filmmakers at this time who were seeking, who were also getting new passports and new citizenship and seeking um, other industry ties. But of course, if you're a filmmaker, I think everyone you know, has this fantasy of what it must be like to be in Hollywood, right? And so what could have, what might have been a political or economic, you know, desire, anxiety is also for, for, the, for the filmmakers or film talent, you know, probably also had the added incentive of, of opportunity and ambition to move, to move to Hollywood or to move elsewhere, but certainly to Hollywood. As these filmmakers are leaving Hong Kong, and now the Hong Kong film industry, to your point earlier, is one of the most lucrative film industries that around, right up there, number two to Hollywood. What happens to the film industry as we're getting closer and closer to 1997? So there was actually a pretty rapid decline in this once really powerful regional industry. Um, it, was, it was the exact moment it changed was in 1993 when Jurassic Park was the top grossing film in Hong Kong. So it was the first time that a Hollywood import had topped local box office. I think from like the sound of music or something by the mid seventies until that early nineties, Local demand for locally produced films exceeded that of Hollywood imports, which is amazing, right? You can hardly think of any other film industry, any other uh, film market in the world, right, where demand for local product exceeds that of Hollywood imports. You know, you, you could take the case of Bollywood or 
Nollywood or something. But what was also remarkable about Hollywood was that it was also exporting its films, right? So it was exporting its films throughout Asia. In the case of Bruce Lee, right, he was being distributed globally and was already a global icon. And so that's another sign of the sort of Hong Kong success, the the, um, extraordinary achievements of the Hong Kong industry was that they were able to, you know, model themselves on Hollywood in a way that they were sort of you know, cannibalizing other film industries and making something that uh, p- that other places wanted to watch and to imitate, as well. So that had been the case from the mid '70s until the early early '90s. But what you know, wh- why does the Hong Kong film industry decline so rapidly and abruptly around the early '90s? There's a lot of speculation, a lot of different accounts for why that happens. Like some people say it's the talent flight, right? as you were talking about with all of these filmmakers, with everyone leaving, just like the Shanghai film industry had sort of collapsed and Hong Kong benefited from it. In the fourth and fifth decade of the 20th century, that's happening to Hong Kong, ironically, at the end of the 20th century. The other thing that's happening, of course, you know, as I said earlier, is Tiananmen. And so there's tremendous anxiety about censorship um, and political and retribution, right? So Hong Kong was famously, you know, laissez-faire economy and the uh, incredibly commercial industry, as I said said earlier, where there was very little... very little very little censorship or editing. It was just, you know, whatever people wanted to, whatever they thought they could market, whatever, uh, very little state intervention in films. And so for the remaining filmmakers, there was suddenly, there was a lot of anxiety about remaining, about what kind of films they could make. And there was also less money because people were less certain that films were Going, were going to be were a, a safe investment for the future, given these circumstances. And of course, you know, economic cycles, right? Can ripples can have huge effects very quickly. So once there's a slight decline in faith or opportunity, um, opportunity, right, that it compounds itself, and so very quickly the industry con- contracted. I had heard rumors that organized crime came in and filled that vacuum as well, and tried to you know basically pick the meat off the bones as the corpse was there. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no question. Everybody, it's widely known and recognized that the triads, Hong Kong's or, form of organized crime, the crime syndicate, um, is a huge factor in the Hong Kong film industry. So that was also going on as well at that time. But I mean, in many ways, it wasn't so much. I don't think it. It in many ways, it was an it was a complication to production. So you have to work with the triad in order to get funding because they're one of the major investors in it. And they often um, will, like, you know, they would want to put, like, they would have, it's funny, they, they're actually, like, the ones who are kind of shaping the stories or something like that. They want the gangsters to look good. They might want their, you know, a gangster's girlfriend, he might want to cast his girlfriend, you know, to give her a role or something like that. They uh, often help clear uh, scenes for locations under sort of like protection brackets, right? So you have to pay them in order to in order to film. But they also so they're both they can complicate the they can complicate production, but they also help lubricate it as well. Um, it's just a recognizable fact about the Hong Kong film industry that organized crime has always been this major factor in the industry uh, throughout the 80s. In the early 90s, there was a moment where. Um, there was a kind of sort of the control, the um, influence exerted by the triads was becoming, um, it had, had become violent and, um, and, and some of the artists were starting to resist. So Frederick Dannon first wrote about this in The New Yorker, about the sort of like, you know, strange um, 
relationship between fiction and real life. So there were sort of, I think there was like a, there was a pipe bomb that was thrown into Jackie Chan's production office and Anita Moy, the big cantopop songstress and actress, she claimed to have been assaulted, I believe. And so there was a sort of street march led by Jackie Chan and Chow Yun-Fat and some other industry figures to protest the strong hand of triad con- intervention and control within the industry. I would say that I don't think that that's probably of less significance in the industry decline and contraction than the larger, the larger concerns of talent flight, loss of faith in um, uh, artistic freedoms and general loss of faith in, uh, faith in the, um, as an investment opportunity. Those triads are coming in and trying to strong on the uh, the folks in the industry. Do you think that they were wearing Armani suits and dressed like Mark Gore? You can watch the Young and Dangerous series, right? Which is the, sort of one of the sort of like reconstruction deconstructions of the of of the hero gangster film that came out later in the later nineties, and it it shows them. I mean, the triads a lot. I mean, like like many crime syndicates, right? They they prey upon um, disadvantaged youth who don't have a lot of economic opportunity, and so. You know, I mean, the 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 real the 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 I don't know what the right term is cannon fodder of of the triads, right? Are 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 not very you know affluent or glamorous or well dressed or well spoken representatives, right? And I think you know I don't think anyone actually believes that even with a better tomorrow that those are realistic representations of triads. You know I think everyone sort of recognizes. I mean that's exactly why the local term for films, you know, for a better tomorrow and the films that were initially made in imitation of it, you know, is a term that doesn't refer to them as being a gangster triad film in the way that we might talk about a movie like Goodfellas or, you know, Mean Streets, right? The local term in Hong Kong has always been the one whose whose language, heroism, right, harks back to these older, like, generic, um, these older genres and thematic traditions. I have to ask you what you thought of the sequels to A Better Tomorrow. There are, you know, there's a lot of... um, controversy about this from from Wu fans right and and at t- various times over his long career Wu has sort of disavowed a better tomorrow too right which he and Choi Hark sort of worked on together and they had to do very quickly because of this and almost success of one and he by all accounts Wu was not involved in the editing of a better tomorrow too and so I actually don't think it's that bad. It's just clearly not, it's not as much of a John Woo film, right? You see the sort of Choi Hart sort of like um, uh, differences in it. And of course, you know, the sort of, but what I find like, you know, I think the thing that really bugs people about A Better Tomorrow too is the sort of like corniness of the Mark Gore having a twin brother, (laughs) you know, like this. But I mean, I actually think like that's so, that's such a classic example of like the Hong Kong industry, which is, you know, like the, the Hong Kong film industry is just irrepressible. It will always come back up and will always come up with new ideas. And it's sort of like um, brilliantly shameless in its willingness to like seize upon any opportunity to make, to make something that's going to be crowd pleasing. So to me, I think like that sort of premise you know, maybe corny, but I think it's actually sort of ingenious and typical of the industry. And then A Better Tomorrow 3, I mean, I think that's actually a great Choi Hark film, right? And, and that really has these sort of Choi Hark signatures. Obviously, it's set in Vietnam where Choi Hark was born, and then you have a strong female character played by Anita Moy. So, you know, by 3, you get these sort of 
things like I mean it's it's kind of like the Harry Potter thing where each film is made by a different director and so each installment has a completely different vision and there's no pretense to trying to sustain the the recipe of the original film so much as to sort of use the the franchise as a vessel for different artistic signatures. What are you working on these days? Well, you know, I just, I don't know if you saw, I have this new book out that came out in January called Arresting Cinema. And this is sort of, I mean, that, that was like my baby. I mean, this, that was really sort of what's been driving me and my study of Hong Kong film all these years is this idea that surveillance of like constant sort of monitoring and control, social spatial data, data control, this thing, this thing that is so much a sort of symptom or aspect of modern life, never more so now, right? Um, that it's some, it's a condition or an aspect or a practice that really defines like Hong Kong culture and Hong Kong cinema in particular, but it's also something that makes Hong Kong cinema unique and that like actually every subject of the modern world can learn more about negotiating this increasing, this world of increasing surveillance by watching Hong Kong film and the ways in which Hong Kong film uses surveillance actually in sort of advantageous and astute ways. Um, so that's my um, current book that just came out. And then I'm starting to research a very, very new project about the relationship between surveillance and Orientalism, which won't, be, which won't only be about film, but also involve my literary training as well. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your projects? You can follow me on Twitter at KFangKaren. And then I'm actually trying to set up a professional website that'll have like all of my like interviews. And so that website should be up and running in a couple of weeks. But definitely, if you want to get inside my brain, follow me on Twitter because I'm constantly just forwarding all the stuff that I'm reading. So if you want a lot of stuff about surveillance and Hong Kong film or movies in general, movies and popular culture in general. Professor Fang, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Thanks for these great questions, and thanks for the work that you're doing, which is amazing. Were there any themes that you might have seen kind of come up in his cinema as he was uh, in those earlier days up until, what, 1986? The stuff about heroism and self-sacrifice and so on, that you can kind of find that in those earlier films to some extent. Like, for instance, Last Hurrah for Chivalry, um, which was sort of a model for some of his later stuff. and then some of the comedies even like plain Jane to the rescue, I sort of argued that that one um, had some elements of his, um, you know, worldview, if you want to put it that way. But the more I've thought of, I mean, I, I think it, to some extent that's reaching a little bit because 
in his earlier career, he just didn't have a lot of control over the, he was a contract director. They were sort of throwing films at him to do, and some of them are pretty routine. So I guess there would be two or three films like that that you could point to. And that's, that's the two that come to mind right off the top of my head. He pointed out one time that the character in Last Hurrah for Chivalry, one of the characters in there, is essentially the same kind of character, if I recall what he said, uh, as the Chalian Fat character in a, in a Better Tomorrow. And, you know, maybe that's hindsight on his part. So I guess there was some preparation there because you, you just don't come around to 1986 and the better tomorrow. And all of a sudden you're doing all these things. He, he was assistant director under Chang Che and he had, he had sort of absorbed a lot of that, that worldview that, um, that he had. And I just think he didn't have much opportunity to display it before. Well, what was it about a better tomorrow where he was able to have that freedom to display it? He managed to work it out with Troy Hark. You know that he was the producer on that, and I think he managed to convince him well enough, or perhaps Troy just wanted to go along with it, to let him kind of have his lead to an extent on that film. He had some freedom. Um, you know, originally that particular film was based on an older. Chinese language film with the same title in Chinese. It was called uh, True Colors of a Hero. What Choi Hawk wanted to make the characters into women characters. And John said, no, let's make them male characters. And I guess after they kind of discussed back and forth some, John was sort of given a chance to show, basically show what he could do with, uh, with a genre film like that. But, you know, they were taking a chance on him because he was just, again, a, sort of a contract director at the time. And I, and I think it was probably uh, pretty much of a surprise that things came out that way. He argued for getting Chow into that film, for instance, and Chow had other commitments and so forth, but they managed to get him, you know, hired. And as I recall, uh, Troy Hart was not very high on having chow in that film i might be wrong about his particular personal objection but there was some resistance uh because chow was sort of thought of at the time chow and fat as kind of box office poison so there's resistance and he turned out to be the kind of you know suppose the star of the film was supposed to be too long the older brother character and it turned out to be chow and fat it was a big surprise to everyone so I think John was probably just as surprised as anybody else as to how, how successful the film became. The stylistic flourishes that are in A Better Tomorrow, which Wu would kind of return to again and again as he moved forward in his career, were some of those, like especially the use of the slow-mo, were those already in his filmography at that point? As I recall, he did some of that in Last Hurrah for Chivalry. See, that was one of his borrowings from Sam Peckinpah and, uh, and those, you know, particularly. Um, and I, I think he just had more of a chance to use it in that film. I don't recall that being a big feature of his work before that, other than maybe Lance Ron for Chivalry. It, it was a little bit of a surprise. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen all the, I've seen every one, I think every one of those earlier films and, 
it's been a while since I've watched all of them, but when I was watching all those things, getting ready to write the book, it still is a surprise to me uh, just how stylistically advanced he was almost seemingly almost all of a sudden in a better tomorrow. I, I just think he matured, you know, as a, as a, as a stylist and he had some freedom and he was inspired by the story and everything just fell into place. And I suppose that happens with artists. Was it fairly common at the time to make sequels out of things or were most films in Hong Kong at the time standalones? I don't think they necessarily made sequels. They often, they would sometimes use uh, the same characters in different films, but I don't, I don't know that there was a sort of a sequel, you know, sequelitis like we have in Hollywood now. They had serial films, they had series films like um, the uh, Wong Fei Hung films. They made a lot of those, but I don't know that they were necessarily, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six different titles, same kind of character, sort of like Tarzan films, you know, serial films. And they had a number of those things. And I, I, I think the better tomorrow one, two, three thing was probably just perhaps due to the 1980s and Hollywood influence, you know, the numbering and sequels and so forth. That was about the time they were doing, you know, Rambo one, two, three, all that and uh, Rocky and so on. And so I, I think it's probably just more a some serendipity with um, world cinema trends anything else. And with Joey Hark, what was his relationship like with Wu as they were working on the first Better Tomorrow film? Uh, it was a little, as I recall, it was a little strained. It got much more strained later because of the events. Well, because of like Better Tomorrow 3, um, John had wanted to do, I, I talk about that in the book, you know, John had wanted to do that type of story that storyline basically as his own film. And then he found out he wasn't informed. He just found out that, that here we go. Troy's going to do this film called the better tomorrow three, you know, and they had a falling out at the time. I understand they've since patched things up, but I think it was a little strained. Um, you know, Troy Hark actually appears in the cameo in a better tomorrow. Yeah, and he's making fun of, you know, uh, of the, the her performance, you know, Vicky, I think is her name, you know, the performance and sort of sarcastic and so on. And I suppose you could take that as a sort of a surrogate for what Troy thought about, maybe thought about some of the projects. See, he, he, he originally, he wanted that film to go in a little different way than it went. And I think John... Uh, kind of won out on that, and I'm not sure that Troy felt very forgiving about it. But that's speculation on my part. I have never, I've never talked to Troy Hark, and you know, I don't know. How did a better tomorrow two come about? As I recall, the events there were a little confusing because John wanted to do. I might be mistaken about that. I'd have to consult my own book actually and look at the tale. Every time I reread that section of my book, I have to do it carefully because. At the time when I was writing it, it was a little confusing because the events were sort of overlapping, if you see what I mean. I think John wanted to do The Killer, and it didn't work out yet. And so he went to do A Better Tomorrow too, because that's what was available. And they came up with a script 
and John was not totally thrilled with the script because the 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 script that that he was given or the idea that he was given was sort of as the film stands that is um an, sort of an allegory about the production problems at Cinema City at that production company the characters in there some of them are stand-ins sort of Ramona Clay you know for different personalities in the upper production level of those of that that of that company and so all the stuff about the you know the mob boss trying to take over you're supposed to read this production guy trying to take over if you see what i mean john just i don't think he was really thrilled with all that you know he went ahead and made the film i get the impression i don't know that john ever said this but i, I get the impression watching the film that he really was not terribly enchanted with the very obvious device of having Mark Chow Yun Fat have a twin brother named Ken who just shows up, very implausible, and so on. Um, and John told me though that that the the idea originally from the storyboarding, I mean from the sort of you know scripting, was to have that that film that is Baratmar Two be more like a comic strip, and that was sort of the approach he was taking, uh, you know, kind of very tongue in cheek, cartoonish approach. The problem was with the making of the film is that it, it ended up kind of long and it got cut and things got kind of rearranged and it got chopped around. And John was not very happy when he saw the release version that was going to be shown. And I discussed that in my book. I mean, it was, it was a good bit longer. The same thing happened with Bolton Head. It got cut. I'm very curious how the whole bullet in the head versus Better Tomorrow 3, you know, because of the storylines, they are pretty similar, but I'm very curious how we have both of those, how we ended up with that. Troy Hart went ahead and made a Better Tomorrow 3, and John wasn't really happy about it. And I think that the bullet in the head, you know, getting to make that was perhaps um, a little bit of penance on the producer's part, okay, we'll let John go ahead and have his head and do this film because he didn't get to do it before, if you see what I mean. Um, and it's a very personal film for him. I think he was deeply chagrined, you know, deeply hurt by all that business about having the idea kind of taken away from him as he saw it and having it turned into the, uh, Better Tomorrow 3. Um, which is not a bad film at all. I mean, it's an interesting film. It's just that the circumstances around it were sort of unpleasant. You know, it's it's like a it's like uh, other sorts of cases in 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 film history where someone gets to go back and make the film that they wanted to make and they were not able to originally because of the way the studio system worked or the way the production companies worked. And it's not necessarily all that unusual. It's fairly easy to look at a film like Hard Boiled and really see how the takeover of China, of, of uh, Hong Kong, can really be very easily seen uh, in that film. Do you think it's a stretch to look at films like A Better Tomorrow and Bullet in, in the Head and look at the takeover in terms of those films? Are those too early for that metaphor to really apply? 
Uh, no, they're not, and not even the killer. A Better Tomorrow, that title, that English title, you know, that's not the original title. The Cantonese title translates out as True Colors of a Hero, as you know, and A Better Tomorrow was the English title chosen. A Better Tomorrow for Hong Kong or not, right? I mean, you can certainly look at it that way. And those characters are quite, maybe it's a little bit of hindsight, with regard to that film, but those characters in A Better Tomorrow are pretty wistful about their lost chances. And that sounds like a familiar theme, doesn't it? You know, with 97. In The Killer, it's pretty explicit. You remember the scene where, and that's not much long after that, a couple of years after uh, A Better Tomorrow. You remember that scene where Danny Lee and Chiang Fat are out on the looking out over from the peak there, I guess, and they're looking out at Hong Kong, and one of them makes the remark that all the, all of this is going to vanish pretty soon and so on. That was explicit, and a bullet in the head can certainly be seen in the same way. I think that was very much on John's mind uh, because he's not, he's not a native Hong Konger. I mean, he came from China and mainland in, as a, you know, when he was very young, and ended up in Hong Kong, and I think he's always been very aware of just how fragile all that connection is, you know, or how tenuous that connection is, the freedom, you know. So, no, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's out of bounds at all. Can you tell me what role does Taiwan play in Wu's film work as far as, because I know that um, some people have said that the trip that uh, the T. Lung character and Weiss Lee take, yeah. uh, is kind of similar or could be read as a metaphor of, of Wu leaving and kind of going off to Taiwan for a while and things from what I've hear, heard didn't work out for him. Yes. And that was, I'm, I, yeah, you're reminding me of some things because I remember talking about that with some of his colleagues, you know, with Terrence and that was a very bad career trough for John at the time. And that business about the Weisley and T. Lung you know, being betrayed and all that in that film, it's easy to read as um, this is about John being sort of sidelined by the uh, producers. So that's, that's quite legitimate. And I'm not sure if John exactly intended that or not, but it certainly uh, reads that way. And it is true that that Taiwan trip of his was very he was in a very low point at the time as far as uh, cinema city and all those uh, that, that company was concerned. Maybe Taiwan was the, um, you know, the fringe or something, but I don't know. You've written recently about hard boiled. And to me, that film speaks so much to the departure, you know, the, the takeover and then also Wu's departure from Hong Kong. Is that a valid reading, or am I again reading too much into this? Yes, it was. It uh, John told me. John John said that that was. Um, I'm not quoting exactly, but to paraphrase, that was the last film he was going to do in Hong Kong, and that was his farewell film, and that he wanted to make a strong statement about law and order in Hong Kong, and that's what he did. So no, it's not reading too much into it. Can you tell me a little bit about the uh, the the essay that you wrote for the uh, Hong Kong neo noir book? That was on uh, running out of time, 
And the, the, the fact of running out of time, you know, the series, the Johnny Toe film. And also I included, um, trying to remember, I included Exiled and um, Vengeance with Johnny Holiday. You know, the Johnny with that Holiday actor and uh, Johnny Toe and a couple of other Hong Kong films. And what I was working with there was um, illustrating how those films uh, and some others show the uh, the constriction of space and the particular architecture and geography and the the uh, the sort of rushed time element that's common to Hong Kong cinema to many Hong Kong films. Um, and I compared that to Twenty Four, the series. That's why the Twenty Four in Hong Kong cinema thing. Can you tell me about the return of Wu to Chinese cinema? And then when he did that, he returned more to mainland cinema than to Hong Kong cinema, correct? Yeah, I, I suppose most of his, the the financing opportunities that he's gotten must have been through mainland companies. And, you know, I have not talked to John in a long time. Um, he's been over in China. And he helped, you know, he, he sent me some, some email answers when I did the new edition for the John Wu book, I believe, you know, in 2012, but he's been over there. And my impression though, was that he went over to China because he had just gotten so dissatisfied with Hollywood and it didn't work out, you know, the last film or two that he made, it just didn't work. And I guess the, mainland, you know, uh, production companies and so forth must have offered him a good enough deal to be able to, that is financing so he could make Red Cliff, which is why he wanted to get over there, I think. And so he made Red Cliff one and two. And I get the impression that the, and, and I don't know that much about it because it's a little hard to, you know, some of those films haven't even been widely released over here, not even on DVD, like The Crossing. I don't even think it's become available over here, and uh, at least not that I've seen. And so it's a little hard to evaluate, but I get the impression that he sort of... Um, I wouldn't want to put it too negatively, but he sort of ran out of string there in China, or maybe he just got, you know, to the end of what he felt he could do there because he's been, as far as I know, he just shot a film over in Japan, uh, Man, the Manhunter film. And apparently there's some, apparently, I, I don't know whether he's going to come back to the States or what. Um, they're being a little mysterious about it, honestly. Um, I, I stay in contact uh, with the uh, office over there uh, periodically, and there's only so much that they can tell me. Well, that brings up a point when you're talking about the crossing not being available right now. When you were doing your original research all those years ago, how easy or difficult was it to find subtitled versions of his earlier <laughs> films, the pre well, tomorrow films? Some of that, uh, a good bit of it was due to the generosity of David Shute. If you know who David Shute is, he used to be John's publicist and he's gone into sort of business for himself, but he's a, you know, a film writer and so on. Um, and when I first started the book way back, you know, 1995, I went out to Fox where Tom, uh, John was doing, um, broken arrow and, 
I met David and, you know, Terrence and, and so on and so forth. And David had, this is VHS days, right? David had a big personal library of a lot of Hong Kong films and they had subtitles and they were on VHS and he lent me, I don't know, 20 or 30 films. And then I sent them back. Yeah. So that I would not have been able to see a lot of those if not for that. And then what I did, and it was quite a challenge sometimes I was living up North Dakota at the time. Um, you know, I was teaching up there and you could get to Winnipeg in two hours, two, three hours in Manitoba. And, um, I discovered in the Chinatown up there that there was a video store that had a lot, you know, you had a whole bunch of films, obviously, Hong Kong films, Taiwanese, all sorts of things. And most of them had subtitles because the law back then, I don't know what the law says now, but back then when Hong Kong was a British colony, there was a subtitling law, you know, and they had very strict laws about all that stuff. Yeah, they had to have subtitles in English, and they would have subtitles in characters. So anyway, they, they were available. Most of them had subtitles, the ones that this guy had. And I worked out a deal with the owner because he probably didn't mind too much because I doubt that they were jumping off the shelves anyway. Um, I would go up to Winnipeg, and the owner would rent me uh, 20 or 30 films or whatever I wanted and I could go back over the border and I'd watch the whole bunch of them and then I'd take them back. And I, that was the only way I could get hold of a lot of those things. So I watched a lot of Hong Kong films, uh, good, bad, and different that way. And then, and then the situation changed a lot, you know, obviously I mean, DVDs came out and so forth, but it took a little bit of creativity, I guess. What are you working on these days? I work a lot on Westerns right now, actually. I mean, I'm still teaching. I teach Spanish and film and so forth. You know, I'm still, I haven't retired yet. Um, and I've been doing, going back and forth, uh, doing papers in Germany on Westerns for about seven or eight, nine years now, I guess. So I'm right now, I'm working on a book on that I have contract on, if I can get it finished, on several professional characters in Westerns like dentists and engineers and teachers and yeah, just, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm right in the middle of all that. And I haven't done too much work on, um, other than that, um, that, that running out of time article, I haven't done too much on Asian film recently, really, but that was a long haul. Anyway, that article, that was, that was like a better tomorrow two and three or something. It, was, it just took, it just took forever. There were all sorts of delays about publication and this and that and, and so on. I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of, um, Facebooking and interviewing and got, I had a good number of people from 24 cast crew that agreed to, you know, contribute or talk to me. And that was a lot of fun. Professor Hall, thank you so much for your time today. It is always a pleasure talking with you. Sure, thank you.
a professor of uh, communication and uh, mass media at St. Peter's University and the uh, Department of Communication and Media Culture. Part of my, my teaching load there is also uh, teaching various uh, courses on films, including uh, one on the uh, on the Asian uh, Asian films, which actually I will be teaching. Uh, I'm, I'm teaching in the uh, in the fall. And what got you interested in writing and, and learning about film? I love of film from the uh, from the time I was uh, I was a, as a small uh, small child that um, and especially action films that there was there was something about the uh, about the art form uh, that uh, just always captivated me just that very kinetic um, art form where I could uh, from 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 the longest time I could see that there's a real skill there's a very particular um, artistry in making uh, this sort of uh, uh, very action oriented uh, very kinetic. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the art form with a lot of showdowns with the uh, uh, with the confrontations that takes a very very particular type of uh, type of artistry to do this. So I'd always uh, always appreciated films like that, and 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 then and then plus, of course, as a um, as a young boy, as most <laughs> most are, I'd always been uh, very much drawn to the uh, just just the excitement of the uh, of the action films. And as time passed, I was interested in studying film, uh, which eventually led me to uh, study at a master's program at the uh, University of, uh, of Miami and then I, I brought more of uh, as, as the time went on more of the uh, the uh, the analytical the critical academic uh, study of the uh, of the artistry of film and then particularly the action movies was the Asian influence on Hollywood action films was that your first book yes yes it was and how did that one come to be what was your inspiration to write that but first, it started with my growing uh, interest, and in, uh, in particularly in the very um, Hong Kong approach to the Hong Kong style approach to uh, uh, to action films. And as I was noticing, you know, as we as, as time passed on since the since 1990s and into the 2000s, I was noticing how much uh, the uh, uh, the Asian films, and again, particularly the uh, the Hong Kong action films, seemed to be really seeping into Hollywood and taking over the Hollywood. Um, action aesthetic, and originally, what really got me interested in uh, in the, in the uh, Hong Kong action films was a, a brief meeting with John Woo himself uh, when I was at the University of Miami. And at one point, uh, that was uh, that was in I would say nineteen ninety three, if I remember correctly, uh, when he had made made the move from Hong Kong to Hollywood, and apparently he was going around to uh, to various colleges to show the last film that he shot in in Hong Kong, Hard Boiled. And I remember just seeing uh, these posters around the campus announcing that this filmmaker from Hong Kong is coming from a, is coming over for a screening of his film and being an action fan myself I thought well let me go and check this out now I thought I was a big connoisseur of the uh, of the Hollywood brand of action movies all the Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger films and the Rambo and the Terminator films were always my favorites uh, so I thought let me go and check this out see see how they measure up and I remember sitting there when the film started rolling that from the very beginning it has one of the best opening 
uh, sequences and action films that I can think of. I was just completely blown away by the uh, by the film. I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be the new yardstick against which an action fan has to uh, has to measure uh, the uh, the action genre. And then as so from from that moment from hard boiled, that's something I was interested in in seeing more of his uh, more of his films because if I recall correctly, it was also that summer when uh, his uh, first Hollywood film, Hard Target, with Jean-Claude Van Damme, had also opened. Uh, so I went to see that uh, real quick, and that was just really interested in, in going and uh, uh, tracking down his original work from, from Hong Kong. So that's really where the, uh, where the interest began. And also I'm noticing through the 90s that mo- all of a sudden now, more and more of the Hollywood action movies are looking more and more like Hong Kong films. So that's, that's what got me interested in going at eventually drawing this, uh, this history and this comparison between, uh, between the Asian aesthetics and in the film, uh, also looking at, at Japanese films as well. But really that's where the, uh, where the, uh, the interest began with that chance of screening and Q&A from John Woo and then uh, looking at how the, uh, the Hollywood uh, action genre was really transforming through the 90s and into the 2000s. I thought that this would uh, um, this would make an interesting uh, interesting film history, and thus the uh, the Asian influence on Hollywood action films was born. So you see, Hard Boiled on the big screen with John Woo introducing it as your first John Woo film. Yes, yes, it was it was it was a, it was a fun experience. Absolutely, I like that you don't just concentrate because from the from the title, the Asian influence on Hollywood action films, and with so many people having such a short memory, we just think, okay, what has been that influence over the last 20 years or so? And having Chow Yun-Fat on the cover, it's like, okay, we're going to see how John Woo helped revolutionize Hollywood. But I appreciate that you go back so much farther and that you go all the way back into the works of Akira Kurosawa and then take us through all of these decades of things and the changes that different Asian filmmakers, uh, their influence on the Hollywood system was fantastic. You notice that it's not something recent, that really uh, so much of, of Hollywood history is this interplay um, between uh, between American filmmakers and the influx of various foreign uh, filmmakers. And then for the action genre, from going as far back as, as, as Akira Kurosawa, um, you see the, uh, you see, uh, the influence uh, there as well, and then that having an impact on Westerns um, and action movies through the uh, sort of 60s and the 70s. So, so it is a, a, a long history. It's a very cyclical history as, as well. So I know, of course, Kurosawa directly influences Leone, and Leone then kind of disseminates his vision of Westerns through the rest of the spaghetti Westerns, European Westerns, and then eventually that kind of comes back into the American four. The American Westerns are changed. How are some of the American non-Western action films influenced by Kurosawa? Probably Kurosawa's biggest influence was in this uh, subgenre of the ma- the group of men on a mission uh, film, where you could go and tie that back to his uh, to Seven Samurai, um, and then with the uh, and that and and uh, that has an impact on uh, on John Sturgis, where he does the Magnificent Seven. But this kind of a uh, this, this this sort of a, a plot formula, where you have the a group of specialists, then you see the showing up in war 
films, uh, say like with the Dirty Dozen, um, and then these various uh, various types of action movies where the uh, uh, where the focus is that you have the specialists, you have uh, various men you who know, have uh, some kind of uh, very specific uh, specialty in combat. You have the uh, uh, the expert with knives or or a demolitions expert, and then they're they're brought together on a mission, usually some kind of uh, almost a suicide mission where most of them are going to be uh, going to get killed. Uh, so all of that ties back to uh, uh, back to uh, Kurosawa as well. You know, so you can uh, you can say, and then afterwards with uh, with the Dirty Dozen, it has various imitators, and then you know you can see it over the decades, even showing up on television, where you have a TV show like The A Team, uh, where that was uh, um, as the, as the, the legend there goes, it was conceived by the uh, um, by the head of NBC uh, Television at the time, where he had this idea that it should be should have a uh, magnificent seven on uh, on TV in a modern action film and Mr. T driving the van, but with this idea that all of them are these very specialists, you know. So it's so all of that. It's not, not, not even going be beyond the Magnificent Seven. It's really Kurosawa, or even over the last uh, decade or so, when you saw uh, the uh, uh, the action specialist films like uh, like Inglorious Bastards uh, that. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, who had always been a big Asian uh, um, action film fan, uh, said that he had for the longest time wanted to make this kind of a man, a, a group of men on a mission action movie. Or with the with the Expendables films with Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. That indirectly, they're they're all uh, they're all, all tracing their roots back to uh, to Kurosawa and, and Seven Samurai. One of the other very key figures in your book is Bruce Lee and the way that he had so much influence, especially on the way that coming from the current Hong Kong or the, the Hong Kong market of his day and then helping to revolutionize the quote-unquote Chopsaki films, the martial arts films. Now, I know, of course... Bruce Lee helped revolutionize those films, and then kind of that influenced into a lot of the black exploitation films. There was almost a subgenre of black exploitation of uh, martial arts movies. How else do you see Bruce Lee working his way into American action films? What he did with the um, uh, with the action with the, the martial arts action genre, and what he and, and when he did it, the specific time, he was almost like the uh, he brought the rebellion into the uh, into the action genre, very much the rebellion, uh, that rebellious attitude of the late '60s and early '70s, you know, first into the uh, into the martial arts uh, genre. Because interesting thing with the martial arts, even the, the just uh, just the, the fighting arts themselves. Uh, for anyone who trains in the martial arts, they're going to notice what a, a very uh, conservative and tradition-bound culture that is. Um, and then Bruce Lee's appeal was even when he was even before he was make, making movies, uh, when he was teaching martial arts, uh, was to say that you know, that you have to go and discard the traditions, uh, that you have to go and find what works for you. Almost like in the in the late '60s and the and the '70s, the uh, the counterculture movement had their uh, had their motto to just do your own thing, you know. So so Bruce Lee was that 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 rebellion into the to the very conservative and traditional martial arts um, culture, and then also into the martial arts film culture.
director. Because before him, usually the martial arts movies uh, were these very staid, very um, tradition-bound uh, films about these noble warriors, very serious, um, very respectful of the uh, of the past, and then this this this, this rebellion uh, that uh, that was Bruce Lee's personality. Uh, his uh, his various biographers always say that he was just uh, he was a rabble rouser. He had he was opinionated. Um, there are there things he believed in. He was willing to fight for. So uh, he brought this uh, he brought this this this, this rebellion into the uh, um, into the uh, into the martial arts genre, uh, which very much connected with uh, uh, with uh, with the times in the late sixties and the seventies. And also then what you from that same time what you're noticing with action films um, in, in in general and very much in the American action films too is that so many of the uh, of the action heroes at that point you know, become uh, the uh, the rebels the people who are always knocking heads with the, with the bureaucracy uh, they're the uh, they're the outsiders you know, they have to go and break the rules to get to get justice uh, so so that 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 that, that sort of a youthful um, energetic rebellion being opinionated the the hero uh, is willing to uh, want to buck the trends that you, you you see that um, that tradition continuing on in, in action films as well, and also just with the uh, with the martial arts themselves. Uh, that for a while, um, you notice that the action heroes um, in in the American action when we do, they always have you know some some level of martial arts skills. Uh, you have uh, after after Bruce Lee, uh, you have the uh, the rise of Chuck Norris's career, uh, where he's going and melding the uh, the image of the American cowboy uh, with the uh, with the martial Martial arts, and of course, Bruce Lee appeared with uh, uh, with, uh, with Chuck Norris in uh, one of his films as well. And at one point, Chuck Norris had been uh, his uh, his student too. So you saw this natural um, a progression from Bruce Lee through the uh, through the rest of the genre. Now, when it comes to the Hong Kong action film and John Woo specifically, the way that those films were introduced to the Western audience, it you know, you're saying the first one that you saw is hard-boiled. I know some people, their first one was The Killer. Other people, it was um, A Better Tomorrow. How do you think that the way that those films were distributed or not distributed in the West kind of helped uh, them enter into our culture and into American, uh, the American uh, consciousness? Those weren't uh, released uh, very broadly in the uh, in the theaters. They would uh, go through the 90s. They would they would show up on on videotape or sometimes show up in uh, uh, some theaters and in some Asian neighborhoods or in or in art house theaters that were um, that were usually interested in foreign films as well. So uh, the fascinating thing is that they did take a hold. Uh, they, they did take such a stronghold despite not having a very broad release. However, what happened, uh, though, was that Hollywood itself, uh, even though the distributors might not uh, go and give a give wide wide release to foreign films, they are conscious of what's going on in the rest of the world. You know, so the uh, the directors, the producers, they're going to the various uh, uh, film festivals around the world. So uh, they were um, they were 
aware of Jaylen Wu, and they were aware that uh, he was interested in coming to uh, coming to Hollywood, and that he made Hard Boiled specifically as his calling card uh, to uh, to Hollywood. That look, this is uh, this is what I'm able to do, and uh, I want to go and and make my films in the American market. Also, at that time, he had uh, teamed up with a producer uh, called Terence Chang, uh, who had also worked in releasing Hong Kong films in the U.S. Of course, not in the uh, not a broad, uh, broad release in the, in the mainstream theaters. Uh, however, he did have that that entree into uh, into the industry. You know, so the so behind the scenes, you know, behind what we're seeing in the mainstream multiplexes, uh, the industry are much more interested in, in foreign filmmakers than in what we get to uh, what we get to see on the screen. So so they were the. the the filmmakers themselves were aware of what John Woo could do, and he was able to get his uh, his entree into Hollywood and then to make his first film there, um, Hard Target, with uh, with Jean Jean Claude Van Damme. What films do you think best exemplify his influence on Western movies? By the time we got to the uh, to the end of the nineties, one film that very uh, uh, very much. Um, just, just really impressed me as this film is very consciously trying to take a lot of John Woo and plus other uh, Asian uh, influences as well and going and packing everything into one film was The Matrix uh, where the uh, uh, the theme and the look of it uh, was very much influenced by, by anime but then the action you know the uh, the shootings the slow motion uh, shootouts uh, the characters with uh, with two guns you know flying through the air doing acrobatics and, and shooting, uh, that was all entirely out of John Woo. Uh, even the uh, Keanu Reeves character's look with the uh, with the long black coat and the sunglasses, I mean, that's that's coming right right out of A Better Tomorrow. That could have been Chow Yun Fat right there. So I thought that that was a very interesting uh, synthesis there of of everything John Woo and and, and other other influences from Asia as well. Also, there's uh, the interesting uh, films that uh, uh, were were made shortly after he comes to. Hollywood that, that he was not directing. Uh, for example, The Replacement Killers uh, that Antoine Fuqua directed, if I remember that correctly, uh, with Chow Yun-Fat and Mira Sorvino. Um, but the look of the uh, look of the action and the way Chow Yun-Fat is doing his, his moves with the two guns and the, uh, the choreography of the, of the action, it looks like the director is definitely going and, and they're, they're imitating uh, John, John Woo right there. Or um, there was the uh, the big hit, uh, which actually John Woo uh, produced, but another Hong Kong director, Kirk Wong, uh, directed. Which I was not uh, honestly a very big fan of, but at least, but the, definitely the look uh, was uh, was all John Woo. The uh, the feel of it. Uh, you're watching it and you're saying, "Aha, okay, this uh, this is where they're, they're they're copying things from this film and the other film, and just the entire look of the uh, of the movie uh, is 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 very much." The yeah, that Hong Kong style. Then, then you start uh, started seeing this uh, uh, bleed into uh, films, say like the uh, they were the, the Charlie's Angels movies by the early 2000s. Uh, that you had a lot of that slow motion ballet like uh, you know, two gun type action choreography. Even with uh, with Angelina Jolie uh, when she was making the uh, the Tomb Raider films, it, there again the aesthetic just looks uh, looks uh, very much that Hong Kong style that had been uh, shaped by John Woo's films. 
Other than John Woo, who were some of the other Hong Kong filmmakers that you see really influencing what we're seeing, at least in the late 90s, early 2000s action films? One of the, the, the big influences, and, and not so much in terms of the directing, but the look of the uh, of the action and fighting, would be a fight choreographer like uh, like Yuan Wu Ping, uh, who, who had uh, worked with uh, with Jackie Chan as far far back as the uh, um, as the seventies, and uh, he was hired for uh, for the Matrix uh, to do the uh, the fight choreography, and then suddenly uh, the fight choreography and a lot of the uh, a lot of these other uh, other action films too, say like the Charlie's Angels movies, or 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 the Tomb Raider films, they they have that very distinct um, look there. Um, also, we had a um, a handful of directors who also tried to follow John Woo's footsteps, not quite to not not quite to the, to the same degree of success, but we saw their 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 influence for a while through the late uh, '90s and the 2000s. An interesting uh, story, I think, is Choi Hark, um, who was known as the uh, Steven Spielberg of Hong Kong. Um, actually, he was the he's a producer director um, who uh, helped John Woo get a better tomorrow made um, because up until then he was forced into making either uh, martial arts movies or or comedies and then finally through Choi Hark um, he's uh, he's given the chance to make the kind of movie that he wants to do and he really wanted to do a, a gangster film for the longest time you know so Choi Hark uh, was a very successful uh, filmmaker in uh, in Hong Kong for for quite a while he had kickstarted Jet Li's uh, career um, and then had also done a number of uh, uh, these fantasy type of uh, type of mar- martial arts films uh, which Hollywood then also goes and takes uh, uh, takes note of for example when Ang Lee gets to make gets to make his uh, uh, his crouching tiger hidden dragon film that's coming out of a tradition of the melding of the martial arts and uh, uh, this uh, magical realist fantastic uh, school of uh, school of uh, martial arts filmmaking but really um, the the success of that and the 80s um, and the 90s and, and Hong Kong uh, filmmaking uh, can be can be tied back to uh, uh, to Choi Hark and his success and his philosophy that you know after the uh, after the, the post Bruce Lee martial arts uh, craze had died down that perhaps that's what Hong Kong filmmakers ought to be doing is to rediscovering this kind of uh, a fantastic magical realist um, orientation towards towards the martial arts you know so so he was very successful uh, in uh, in Hong Kong and then he he tries to make the the jump over to uh, to Hollywood uh, he does a um, uh, does a couple of Jean-Claude Van Damme films uh, one of them was knockoff film with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman where uh, there are a couple of a uh, couple of spies neither of those films are quite the big successes uh, that uh, John Woo's Hollywood films are uh, so. Eventually, he uh, he returns to uh, uh, he returns to Hong Kong uh, later on. So not 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 quite the uh, not quite the same uh, same level of uh, uh, success there. Also, uh, there were a couple of uh, filmmakers like uh, uh, like Stanley Tong. Uh, he would uh, he directed the. Uh, Rumble in the Bronx uh, with uh, with Jackie Chan in, in Hong Kong, uh, which uh, then uh, lets Jackie Chan uh, get back into the uh, 
get back to attempting to break into this time this time successfully into the uh, into the Hollywood uh, market. Uh, Kirk Wong, as we were mentioning before, uh, with the uh, with the big hit. Although none of these, um, also Ronnie Yu is an interesting filmmaker because he had also made um, a number of the uh, a number of these fantastic fantasy oriented uh, films back in Hong Kong. Eventually, he is able to make a couple of uh, horror m- movies in Hollywood, but not quite. None of these filmmakers are quite uh, reaching that uh, that level of uh, of success as uh, as John Woo. Is. Now, however, the the look you know, overall, there's this there's a general trend that the look of the action genre um, is looking more and uh, more and more like the uh, uh, like the Hong Kong uh, approach to uh, to action filmmaking. Why is the think that John Woo ultimately? I mean, of course, he had some success with Face Off and with Broken Arrow and. I like Hard Target, but he didn't necessarily thrive when it came to the United States. Why do you think that he didn't? He ended up going back and uh, producing and directing uh, in China. He had often talked about uh, not being comfortable with the uh, with the interference from the uh, from the studios. A lot has been uh, has been written by, um, but he has he has given interviews and and critics have looked. That the making of Hard Target, where if you go and put it next to Hard Boiled, you see a lot of uh, uh, various scenes and sequences that he's borrowing from uh, from Hard Target. Is is I mean Hard Boiled, and he's he's uh, trying to recreate that. But he had a lot of interference from the uh, from the studio, uh, the pressure to go and you know make it more American, to uh, to be careful of the uh, of the MPAA uh, ratings board. Um, because um, if I remember correctly, it was something like seven or eight times the MPA would force him to uh, to re-edit the film uh, so that they could give him an R rating, which the uh, which the studio Universal had required. They said, John, you have to give us an R-rated film and not an X-rated or an NC-17 uh, rated film. So, from a lot of what he has uh, what he has said is that this this type of uh, this type of interference from studios. From producers and the uh, and the ratings uh, situation and the and the U.S. has just 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 frustrated him uh, to uh, to no end. And this is generally a trend, though, that uh, you see oftentimes with very unique artists and filmmakers, uh, where they're noticed doing their their films either independently or or in foreign markets, and they're very successful. And then the uh, the studios take note and they go and uh, and try to extend an invitation and come and make your your films for us. However, when it comes to making the movies, uh, suddenly uh, they are constantly interfered with and and homogenized, and really their 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 vision is undercut. And so, so this, this is a long t- a tradition of frustration um, among artists, and and this has has been a frustration for him as well. When you put this book out, it came out in 2008, and if memory serves, that was somewhere around the time that this kind of South Korean renaissance of films uh, was starting and obviously still continues very strongly today. So it's interesting, and I'm, this is not me criticizing your work because uh, obviously you don't know what the future is going to be. It's interesting that you're concentrating so much on Japan, Hong Kong, mainland China, uh, Thailand, all these different places, but, but South Korea is not necessarily mentioned. 
when you are now teaching your Asian studies film class, how much weight or how much uh, influence does South Korea get in your own classwork? Right, it's 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 changing. Yeah, that's that's the uh, that's how we we noticed this with the uh, uh, in the class itself. That as the influences and the mark and the film markets are changing, you see the the emergence of uh, successful uh, South Korean films. That the class itself uh, now is getting more of a uh, more of a focus on on Korea too. Uh, for example, with uh, with movies like Snowpiercer or, or Old Boy, uh, the the host. Uh, these uh, these films that Hollywood had taken. Can uh, take a note of, and they get at least uh, at least DVD releases or or cable uh, film releases, or the case with Old Boy, where he had the uh, we had a remake. That, that, that definitely, you know, now the uh, our focus in the uh, in the class is also putting more of the uh, the emphasis on Korea as well. And then perhaps I should I should get back and do uh, another volume to the uh, to the book too, uh, where where we would be uh, seeing an update from the uh, from uh, from 2000 and what has been happening over the uh, over the past decade. Well, I'm curious, what influences are you seeing from the South Korean market onto the U.S. action films? Well, the, the the biggest influence is just the noticing of the um, of the of, of the talented filmmakers. Uh, like for example, the uh, um, uh, the uh, director of uh, one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, recent uh, recent films, the uh, The Last Stand, where he's not really it, it's not really bringing a very unique new uh, vision to the uh, to, to the choreography of the action or the look of the film. I mean, the film itself looks like a very very old-fashioned Western uh, film, but uh, just the, so far, I'd say that so far the uh, the aesthetic is not that sharp yet. Uh, that the uh, the look of the film has not quite uh, the looks the look of the action movies haven't that quite um, had an impact yet. Uh, where the uh, Hollywood is Hollywood is, uh, is aware of these filmmakers, but really you haven't seen the changing of Hollywood quite as much as you saw in the nineties uh, with the uh, with the incoming of the uh, of the Hong Kong filmmakers. You know, so there's this awareness. Like for example, there was the uh, the remake really of of Old Boy uh, from Spike Lee. Which was was not successful at all. Uh, so there's this awareness that you have talented filmmakers there, but they haven't quite really been given the uh, uh, the chance to really change um, Hollywood that that much. I mean, right now Hollywood seems to be in the uh, grips of this this this, this mania, uh, this obsession with superhero films. So that that's really the uh, uh, the uh, the aesthetic there, which I would also argue has a lot of the imprints of uh, of the of the old Hong Kong and the martial arts films, but not quite so much uh, South Korean. Well, at least not yet. I can definitely see what you're saying, especially thinking of, uh, as uh, Deadpool would say, the superhero landing and these kind of overly stylized movements that some of these uh, superheroes are doing. I can definitely see that kind of coming from the, the stylization and the... Sometimes the action in some of the Hong Kong films, again, not a criticism, something that I actually liked, would almost get a little cartoonish, and that seems to play into that superhero uh, aesthetic very well. 
when you have the uh, you know the big showdown of superheroes and then suddenly the camera is swirling around everything and everything is moving all at once and and slow motion it it, it actually reminds me a lot of the uh, so-called wire foo movies that jet lee uh, used to make uh, where where uh, everything is just 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 in this uh magical other other realm where quite the physics don't work the same way that they do in the real world yeah, but of course with superhero movies you can uh, you can justify that you can you can get away with that a little easier where you can say well all these characters have superpowers and that's where they're flying around but interestingly enough they're flying around exactly as they uh they used to do in a lot of the uh, a lot of the, uh, those hyperbolic magical realist martial arts films I can totally see that. I can see a very clear line between, obviously, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Ang Lee's Hulk, and then the rest of these superhero films. Sure. That, 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 since we, since the action films themselves were, see, you know, real human beings going and shooting at each other with, uh, with guns that they, 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 they seem to be, uh, have taken a back seat to the, uh, uh, to the, to the super powered superhero fantastic films. Uh, really what, what we've seen with the, uh, um, uh, with, uh, the, the, the Hong Kong style of action has just then moved into superheroes. Um, absolutely. When you're teaching your your students about uh, these Asian films, what are some of the ones that they react to the strongest? We look at various types of films, not just the uh, the action films. They're very big fans of hard boiled. Usually, I would go and start out the uh, the uh, uh, the semester with that. I tell them, well, we'll, we'll start by, by seeing a newish film, uh, something a little more recent, and then go and jump back in uh, in history, go down a couple of decades. Uh, they react very strongly to to Kurosawa, but Kurosawa was Ikiru. Uh, even more so than any of his uh, samurai films, which which I find very fascinating. Uh, they are very very big fans of Once Upon a Time in China, uh, with uh, with Jet Li. Of course, that was directed by Choi Hark as well. Uh, so there, usually I get a very strong reaction out of uh, out of Once Upon a Time in China, and then we usually we watch The Big Boss, uh, Bruce Lee's uh, first film, that also rates rates right right up there. They're usually the top three uh, would be Bruce Lee and Once Upon a Time in China. And then, interesting enough, Ikiru is, is always uh, is a big, uh, uh, big favorite of a lot of students. Usually, they, they tell me that they uh, they react well to the uh, uh, to this 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 kind of uh, um, tongue-in-cheek, slight humor of bureaucracy uh, that's at the at the core of uh, of, of of Ikiru. Uh, so uh, it's it's hard to uh, hard to predict. Now, you've written uh, at least two other books, Blood, Guts, and Testosterone, Action Films, Audiences, and a Thirst for Violence, as well as Conspiracy Films, A Tour of Dark Places and American Conscious. I want to know, uh, when it comes to conspiracy films, I'm a big fan of conspiracy films. I'm curious, what are some of your favorite conspiracy films? I am a very big fan of uh, Seven Days in May uh, with uh, with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. I think it's it's a fantastic film. I think it holds up uh, very well to uh, to this day. And just uh, interesting thing about it, I think, is that where you have, especially today, when you have a lot of conspiracy movies, it's you have a very action heavy films. And when you're looking at Seven Days in May, it's essentially all driven by very very good dialogue. 
dialogue, and the uh, the script there was written by Rod Serling, uh, so uh, creator of of, uh, of the Twilight Zone. He knows how to create a really good crackling, you know, strong character and dialogue-driven script. So that I think is a very very good film. Um, also, I'm a big fan of. Uh, the uh, the parallax view uh, from the early seventies with uh, with Warren Beatty uh, that um, it's 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 this interesting approach to the conspiracy um, plot where you only see as much as the um, as much as the main character sees throughout the uh, throughout the whole film. Actually, I'm wondering, have you ever seen that? Because oh, yeah. there's an interesting okay. I wonder should we spoil the uh, the ending because that's that's an interesting point of I think of the the analysis of the film. Um, would the listeners appreciate if we do? Well, what I want to do, actually, is uh, I've been wanting to do an episode on the Parallax View, so I'm hoping I can actually have you back on here and we can talk about the film a little bit more, as well as other conspiracy movies. Oh, sure. I'd love to. Absolutely. Because yeah, I think it's one of my favorite films. I usually tell my students that you get to watch this movie because I love it, and I can watch this over and over again. Yeah, it doesn't ever get old. Oh sure, sure, and and that, that, that is also like the uh, uh, like Seven Days in May that, that I think it, it holds up so well, um, and the uh, just the paranoia at the uh, at the core of it is is, is so taut and builds as the uh, as the as the film goes on. It's just a very very cleverly constructed film, and then there's that aspect of it that. All the way through, you only know as much as the as the main character does. Uh, so it's it's it, it leaves it leaves you nice and paranoid. I I think on the end, which films like that uh, should do, and that when you're coming out of the other uh, theater, that you should be looking over your shoulder and, and thinking about, oh my God, who's listening on the uh, on the other end of the line uh, when I uh, when I pick up the phone. So it, it's 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 one of my favorite films, absolutely. Are you working on anything new? Um, right now, I am working on a on a book which I am editing together about the history of the end of the world, the apocalypse, in, in popular entertainment, in films and television, um, and then also um, by the uh, the projected release date of this should be probably mid to later uh, 2018 um, will be a chapter in a book called A Companion to the Action Film uh, by Jim Kendrick. And uh, there I'm going to be, uh, my chapter will be among a number of uh, really, uh, really good writers there on action films. So uh, um, that's, I'm, I'm excited uh, for that film because it's really bringing together, aside from myself, a lot of, a lot of very, very good writers. Academics have studied uh, the action, uh, action genre for a long time. Uh, there's uh, various other chapters on Asian uh, films as well. My chapter is also on the history of the, uh, the Asian influence. But it's just a very good collection of some really outstanding scholars on the genre. Are you active? Uh, do you blog? Do you social media? Any of that kind of stuff? Is there a place where people can keep up with your work? I blog, uh, which uh, after this I'm going to be uh, I'm blogging even uh, even more actively. I have a blog. Uh, you can find me at barnadonovan.blogspot.com. Or on Twitter, my Twitter handle is bwdonovan. Professor Donovan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's been a, it's been a great, uh, great talk. And hopefully people listening will go and check out more, uh, more Asian action movies. They're, they're fantastic.
right, we are back and we we're talking about A Better Tomorrow. I said up top that the film is a hallmark of action cinema. We've talked about the sequels and even mentioned a few things that A Better Tomorrow has influenced. But let's talk about some of the uh, other things that the film has led to over the years. Did you have a chance to see Return to A Better Tomorrow? Yes, I did. What did you think of that one? There's not much in common with A Better Tomorrow. <laughs> At all. And I have to say that they really kicked up the level of melodrama and and that sense of there's not that sense of a brotherhood of three pe you know, three guys that are but now you've got like this father and his young daughter is like one thread of this kind of emotional storyline. And then there there's another guy and a female character, but Man, they really kick it up with the the dad and his kid. They go for everything that you like. No, they're not going to take it there. Oh God, they are. And um, so it's a, it's a it's like a way more. It, it's like the the John Woo esque kind of emotion, but kind of falling more into the melodrama than into this kind of like heroic bloodshed and and loyalty and friendship kind of thing. But it was an interesting one, but not not very closely related. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's what kind of doomed the movie a little bit in some people's eyes is that if you're going to call your movie Return to a Better Tomorrow, it better have something to do with a better tomorrow. Chow Fat needs to at least show up at one point and be like, hey, try my rice. Or maybe his picture's on the wall at least. Right. <laughs> or they're reading one of the comic books the that comics, he yeah. that his brother Ken was featured in. And there's that ridiculous like soccer game that pops up at the end. Yeah. It's like, where the hell did that come from? Oh, well, wait. No, it comes from they needed to put that in because at the end, there's a scene where the guy like, I, I think it's a gun. He kicks a gun to the other guy and you flash back to the soccer game just to see like why he's able to kick the gun directly oh, to him. But yeah, the last fight, like there, there's some brutal stuff in that last fight. Like the guy who gets the rebar like put through his shoulder and he like, and you know, has to finish the battle like attached to a car there or something it was um but yeah it's and i forget the actor's name who plays the the father he he was great in this ringo lamb film called full alert but he's really good he's a really good actor and uh he's fun to watch i, I like him a lot but yeah it it feels very distant very distant from from john Woo's film and then in 2010 there was I don't know. I remember hearing that this wasn't necessarily a remake of A Better Tomorrow, but it was more a remake of Story of a Discharged Prisoner. But it sure seemed like a remake of A Better Tomorrow to me more mm -hmm. than the 68 yes. film. The Korean filmmakers, uh, I forgot who directed that one, but I think the Korean films are kind of closely tied to kind of the John Woo-esque emotionalism that's in those stories because – the way I like to describe Korean films to people who've never seen them is they make you care a lot about their characters, and then they do horrible things to them. That sounds like old boy right there. That's old boy. It's Train to Busan. It's A Bittersweet Life. It's like all of these films. Oh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance is like one of the most grueling films. I love that movie. And if I feel like I need a real catharsis, like I need to go through something kind of horrific and come out the other end— like, I'll put that on. But to me, that's what Korean films are about. It's about – and 
I think like one thing that I noticed in in because I'm a huge action fan at, across you know all these different countries, and what I always find interesting is that the violence in these action films is very kind of unique or is very specific to the country of origin. The thing about Korean films is a lot of the violence and the action is rooted in some sense of division or betrayal. And I think it stems from, you know, being in a country that was divided where you literally have families that are, you know, on two different sides of a border or, you know, can't, can no longer have contact with someone, you know, on the other side. And so a lot of these Korean films, which is very much like, you know, Wu's sense of this betrayal that can happen amongst close friends, is you you get this sense of, you know, two sides and neither one is necessarily bad sometimes, but two sides where there's this this rift and that just ups the ante in terms of what happens in the storyline. And it can be between friends. It can be, you know, amongst gangsters. But you, you get this, this sense of a rift or betrayal and it just – and you sometimes care for both sides. So whatever happens is just going to be bad no matter what. Like you just – no, you're going to be in. That Korean remake had kind of some of that. And they even made the ending more downer than A Better Tomorrow. So they kicked it up a few notches there. Yeah, the chickens die and the lizard dies. And yeah, everybody dies. It's everybody dies. That good. And that's not an understatement. <laughs> yeah. And then there was the strangest one, which I happened upon, which was the 1994 Hindi action film, uh, and now I've 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 been doing such a great job of butchering Chinese names that I'm just going to butcher this one as I'm well even to even try. say Atish feel the fire. You know it has its own charm, but there are full on Bollywood numbers in the middle of this film that are just you just go like wow you can stop all the action for this, but it it actually there are a number of kind of like key plot points that. It does stay very close to A Better Tomorrow on um, certain plot points, but it's crazy. I mean, it's always interesting to talk about the Bollywood remakes because that's the first thing that goes through your head is like, do they have a musical number? I mean, I'm, I just of mentioned they do. Old Boy, and I remember watching the uh, Bollywood version of Old Boy, and I was just like, what's going to be the songs? When are they going to take the breaks for the songs? <laughs> Is there the octopus eating song? What's going to happen? <laughs> well, it's funny because, I mean, there is, I mean, the mainstream of Indian film, there's a, a lot of these, you know, what they call Bollywood films, where there is this this need for a certain kind of product that delivers on certain points. And there have been people like uh, Ram Gopal Varma who try to kind of, it's, I think they call it Mumbai Noir or something, where they're the gangster films where they try, if they do have musical numbers, they try to make them like part of a nightclub scene where it's meant to be part of the narrative as opposed to an actual like musical number dropped in the middle of a gangster picture. And so like there's a there's a trend more recently to kind of try and create a, a different tract of of, you know, genre cinema. But this one is like full on kind of Bollywood and the there's a definite romance that is a much bigger part of the storyline than it is in I think any of the other incarnations of Better Tomorrow. Yeah, it's very surprised I just watched the film Dangal 
and of course there's the title theme but that's not really like a musical number when they play that there's only like one musical area and that takes place at a wedding Mm -hmm. and then the rest of the time it's like music over scenes and i was just like wow this is like you're saying a different take on the bollywood musical as opposed to almost the record scratch and then let's sing and dance yes which is fine. I mean, it's just a different way of making movies than we're used to. But that's, you know, it, it can lead to some very interesting parts of a film. I mean, when it's a remake of something that that's American or that's Hong Kong, where that is such a foreign element to, like, most American films and such a foreign element to Hong Kong action films, that that's where it really becomes noticeable. Because, I, I mean, I love Bollywood films. They're great. They're so entertaining. But there's that disconnect where you you have your expectations all based on what you've already seen in the original. <laughs> right. And then you go in and you're going like, no, are they really going to do that? Oh, they did. And so, like, that's where the the disconnect feels larger because it it doesn't feel like like it's organically coming from Indian cinema or anything. And so it's like they're forcing some of these elements onto the story that we know. And we're kind of like, oh, I didn't expect them to do that. And romance is not really a part of that relationship between these three guys. Like, having that as kind of a key plot element doesn't quite fit what we kind of expected it to be. Years ago, when I was haunting the Chinese grocery store, uh, looking for more John Woo films and and, uh, uh, Jackie Chan films, ran across this film called My Hero. And I thought it was a uh, a Chow Yun-Fat film because the cover of it was this guy with sunglasses, the matchstick coming out of his mouth, the duster on, and then I realized how comedic the drawing was, and I was just like, okay, so it was like this 1990 film that was speaking directly to what had been going on in 86, and what was uh, the sequel was like 87, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was my introduction to Stephen Chow. I had no idea who Stephen Chow was before that film, and I went back and rewatched that this uh, just recently, and I think he's he's kind of making it's definitely not that influenced by a better tomorrow if anything it seems like it's more influenced by a better tomorrow too because our main character is constantly reading comic books mm-hmm. which could feature ken or mark in them but uh, and he does wear the famous mark outfit mm-hmm. but it's not nearly as um uh, i thought it would be much more of a parody film than it was but it's still good i enjoyed it well, I think it's it's definitely Stephen Chow's kind of perverse take on Chow Yun Fat, and they have a connection before because wasn't Stephen Chow in the God of Gamblers sequel that Chow Yun Fat starred in the original one, and then I think Stephen Chow made kind of a more humorous one that was God of Gamblers as well. But Stephen Chow is hilarious and physically so adept at at. It's that blurred line between action and slapstick comedy where it's stunt work, but it's also slapstick work. And he and it's great because he I mean, when he puts on that duster coat and he's got the sunglasses and the toothpick, uh, the matchstick in his mouth, you know, and he walks in and he's he's walking in like he is chow yun fat. And then, of course, like something ridiculously stupid happens to him immediately. (laughs) 
so to, to completely undercut everything that he's right. just right. set up. But um, he is uh, he's an amazing comic talent. And it, I think it's hard sometimes for Americans to appreciate him because although he does a lot of very physical comedy like he did in uh, Kung Fu Hustle, he also has a lot of films like Flirting Scholar where it's very, very verbal and I remember talking to him and he said, like, sometimes my films are so verbal that I don't even think it translates from Cantonese to Mandarin. And he says, mm. like, you know, I don't even think the jokes translate like that, let alone from Chinese to English. And some of his stuff is very – I remember there was one where he actually has a duel. I think he's a poet and he, they, two poets have a duel of poetry where it's like kung fu poetry and they, like – it's like you know a rap thing, like a, a slam session where they like they they read their poems and they they like get bloody noses from it, <laughs> from it being like such a good poem. And uh, so his stuff is great. And you know even if this isn't like a direct parody of Better Tomorrow, this is definitely Stephen Chow's take on Chow Yun Fat's kind of iconic image and and action star, you know, kind of uh, trajectory. But he's he's hilarious. And this, there's some fights in this that were really good, um, but comedic. But, you know, not where you're seriously worried about his, you know, well-being, but they're impressive. And he's a great physical comedian. Well, I was really glad that the riddles that he keeps throwing at Xing uh, Fuan translate. I mean, they probably aren't what the original riddles were, but they are good and they actually make sense. And so that was good. And I like their relationship where he, you know, Xing Fuan is just constantly, you know, busting uh, Stephen Chow's balls. And then they finally become friends towards the end. And then a terrible thing happens, but it actually works really well. Yeah, I love his stuff, and it, and his stuff doesn't get shown here as much as you know some other, uh, you know, Asian stars. But I love his stuff, and it's hard to find sometimes, and especially when you're talking about like finding one that has good subtitles. Yeah, there's only like a handful that I can think of with um, you know like flirting scholar and uh, fight hustle. back to school. Yeah, kung fu hustle. Oh yeah, got of a course, good kung fu here. hustle and Shaolin soccer. I mean, Shaolin yeah. soccer for me really kind of put him on the map more right. with American audiences, and then Kung Fu Hustle was great. But then, I mean, didn't he just do that like mermaid one? I mean, he, the mermaid, it's like one of the top grossing films of all time, and yeah. nobody in the U.S. seems to know about it. Yeah, they showed it here at our uh, Asian Film Festival, so they showcased it there. But Kung Fu Hustle and, and Shaolin Soccer, I think, translated well because they weren't quite so verbal. They were much more about the physical comedy. And so I think that was easy for audiences to kind of tap into. Right. Well, those musical scenes with the Hatchet Gang. Oh, God, and, it's so good. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then the, the landlady who is running like uh, like the Wile E. Coyote. Yes. Chu Jen, I think her name is. She is just amazing. And some of that stuff was literally like Looney Tunes. Oh, comedy. yeah. Chuck Jones or Looney Tunes stuff. Like it was – and it it was outrageous visually. It You know, it wasn't just – I mean it was – I think there was some CGI and then wire work. And like he just – whatever it took to make it absolutely ridiculous. And those films were so much fun. Now, according to the source of all knowledge that is the internet, 
Stephen Chow actually was in A Better Tomorrow as a Taiwanese triad, but I don't remember seeing him. Ooh, I, I'm going to have to go back and watch and see if I can yeah. ferret him out. There, are, there is also that issue of like getting accurate film credits for a lot of Asian films here in the United States is hard because sometimes they just don't translate the names properly or they they attribute the same name two different people you know to one person just because they only only one of those two people is well known but yeah I, I remember when I was doing some you know interviews and, and early research like back in the early 90s and trying to find information on some films and it's like well I can't find anything on this person. <laughs> I can't find much in depth on this person. And, you know, trying to find out actually, like, sometimes people would have three different names listed and um, trying to pare that down. So, yeah, trying to find stuff where I don't speak or write Chinese and being here in the United States sometimes was a real challenge. Chow Yun-Fat's name is misspelled in the opening credits <laughs> of A Better Tomorrow. It is kind of crazy and people don't necessarily appreciate the the lengths that people like you that people like um you know colin Geddes would have to go mm-hmm. through when it comes to the translations of just yeah the titles the names yeah. i mean because we have the chinese titles for these things we'll have the what it translates to um in english so the direct translation of a particular title and then we have the english title on top of that so it's just like so which movie are you talking about are you talking about true colors of a hero or are you talking about a better tomorrow well they're the same movie you know and sometimes those things you know and sometimes there are spelling mistakes that are mm-hmm. introduced into some of those so like flirt scholar from uh, Stephen Chow I see as Flirtong scholar all the time you know it's like well which movie is it you know <laughs> so oh, it was such a challenge finding these films like in the late 80s and early 90s I mean I remember going to Comic-Con and it was bootleg VHS at certain points with fan-made subtitles that sometimes were way better than the subtitles you could find on the DVDs that were being legitimately sold. But I just remember, and, you know, some of my friends talk about the romance of all that, of, like, trying to find stuff when it was much harder. So it was a much bigger deal, like, ah, yeah, I got the uncut bullet in the head. You know, I finally tracked that down. You know, so you'd feel a much bigger sense of accomplishment when you were getting stuff on Laserdisc and VHS and you couldn't find anything on the Internet or anything like that. And so there was this bigger sense of accomplishment and kind of geekery when you would have to really – research it out and try to find it and, you know, get the right thing. I mean, at that time, I was buying like a ton of laser discs. I just, I still have a huge collection of laser discs because that's how, like, a lot of them, that was the format that I found them on. And then there were those weird dark days when Hong Kong cinema was kind of trickling out yeah. into the mainstream American market so you could go to like Suncoast Video or mm-hmm. FYE and you'd find those horrible VHS uh, versions of stuff and it's like here's Chow Yun-Fat on the cover uh, it's a nasty Photoshop job and then you go home and you put it in and you're like oh I already have this movie but here it is under a yet a different title it's like the Suncoast Video title or they were also like really badly dubbed because they thought that Americans wouldn't wouldn't read the subtitles. And actually like that was a big issue when those films first started coming out like when they tried to import uh, Jackie Chan's films. 
like that period of time was where they didn't know how to market Hong Kong action because Hong Kong action films are very pop culture. They're very mainstream on a certain level. Like it, it's an easy film. It's an easy sell on a certain level to an audience because it's it's got a lot of components that they're very familiar with and that are really appealing to a mainstream audience. But they're subtitled. And I just remember during that time, it was because a number of the Jackie Chan films when they first came out were all dubbed um, when they released them in theaters. You know, Super Cop and Rumble in the Bronx, which he shot some of that in English. And um, I forgot what other ones were coming out at that time. But they were the initial impulse was for them to dub them and release them into semi-mainstream theaters. And it was just such a struggle because, you know, I was writing these reviews and these articles going like, these films would be so popular with mainstream audiences, with people who are eating up films like whatever, you know, Die Hard or Tarantino or whatnot. Like, they would love them, but people are afraid of these subtitles. And Hollywood doesn't know, you know, studios, distributors don't know how to market them with subtitles. And, you know, I remember at that time it was not an Asian film, but Brotherhood of the Wolf, which was French. Uh, I remember going to a, a screening of it at a mall theater. And when the characters started speaking in French with subtitles, there were people in the audience who were just, I didn't know I was coming to see a foreign film. And they were kind of upset, but I'm going like, give it a chance. You're going to really like this movie. <laughs> like, um, but I just remember there was that whole time period where it was hard to find them and it was hard to convince studios that they should release these films for a mainstream audience in the United States with subtitles because that's how they're more enjoyable. It was it was rough getting to some of those films, like just being able to track them down. Well, and then you've got a-holes like uh, Harvey uh, Weinstein, who I hated way before this year, (laughs) because he would go in and think that he knew how to cut these movies to be better films. And people would spell Miramax with an A-X-E at the end, because he just would chop things to shit and make these movies make no fucking sense. So there you are trying to say, let's go see Super Cop, you know, Better Tomorrow, th- or uh, not Better Tomorrow, <laughs> Police Story 3, yeah. and this is going to be fantastic. And then you get in there, and it's just this pile of dog shit that's been dubbed and hacked. And yeah. you're like, what am I watching? Why do, would anyone think that this is good? And it's like he's just shooting himself in the foot. Well, and not only that, but I remember Miramax or, or the Weinstein Brothers, whatever it was, had like a huge collection of Jackie Chan films that they bought. They owned them and they didn't release them. They just sat on them. And then it wasn't until New Line released Rumble in the Bronx and it did well that they're suddenly like, oh, wait a minute, we have, I don't know, like Drunken Master and Police Story. And and I remember for a while Jackie Chan was youthening on screen because Rumble in the Bronx came out and then suddenly Miramax was like, wait, we've got these other films. Let's start releasing them. And he was getting younger and younger because they were de- reaching further back in his, you know, catalog. And finally, some of those films came out. But it was like, you guys sat on them. You sat on them for all this length of time. And then when you did release them, you chopped them and dubbed them. So, like, screw you. Damn it. I'm remembering the anger now. Yeah, it's like that bad touch all over again. 
But it was it was when those films got re- released here that I finally got a chance to interview people like Jackie Chan and Michelle Yeoh and Stanley Tung and uh, Sammo Hung and the people like that became available, which was like really great. Yeah, it's really sad as we're talking about this stuff and like rewatching, uh, you know, a better tomorrow and watching a better tomorrow three. And I'm just like, Anita Mui and Leslie Chung aren't with us anymore, oh, and those two people are just so magnetic, especially Anita Mui. She was so wonderful. I just rewatched uh, the Heroic Trio oh, again. It's such a wonderful film. I love that movie, and I was watching it with a friend who had just only seen Michelle Yeoh. And the recent stuff that she'd been, mm-hmm. even the Star Trek Discovery stuff, and it's just like, no, 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 take a look at this. This is when Michelle Yeoh was just an ass kicker. Oh. I mean, she's still great, but her in that movie, forget about it. And yes, madam. Oh, God, yeah. She's so good. She's so Well, she good. gives Jackie Chan a run for his oh. money in Super Cop. Well, and they really had like a one-upsmanship relationship on the set because she would do stuff. She would do stunts. And she, you know, she was a beauty queen. She was a ballerina before this. But she had a real like, anything you ask me to do, I can do it. And she would learn how to do these stunts and these fights. And whatever they asked her to do, she would do. And then Jackie Chan goes, well, if you're going to do that with the motorcycle, then you know I got to do this with that. And if you're going to do this, then I better jump off of a higher building. And you know, it was just like it kept upping the level, which, you know, for the end result on film was great because we, you know, got a film that had some really kick-ass stunts. But yeah, she's amazing and so much fun to watch. She was great. The heroic trio was good. And both Leslie Chung and Anita Mui, I think, died fairly young. They were like, I think, in their, I think Leslie Chung was in his early 50s. And I think she was fairly young too, which is doubly sad. I want to say that they both died in 2003. I think it was the same year for both people. Oh, man, was it? Oh. That's just a, that's a terrible blow. She was cancer and he was suicide, if memory serves. I think, yeah, I think so. And that, like, he was a big canto pop star. And so the response to his death was, you know, it's like Elvis or something. Him singing the end theme to A Better Tomorrow. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. the, like I said, the music for that movie is fantastic. And when he starts singing, I mean, that version of that song is of all the things, when that gets stuck in your head, it's there for a long damn time. <laughs> and Anita Mui, too, was a, a a singer, a popular singer, too. I mean, I think I remember when she they first were kind of like introducing her to American audiences. They were talking about her as being like the Hong Kong Madonna. Yeah, I just saw a thing recently about, sorry, I'm getting off topic, but <laughs> Maggie Chung and just like, what has she been up to lately? And she was another one where it's just like. Yeah, she was amazing. She was always she was right there with Jackie when it came to trading uh, jokes. You know, like her comic timing in those Jackie Chan mm-hmm. movies was as good as Michelle Yeoh's uh, fight timing. Yes, yes, and she she got roughed up a few times in some of those stunt scenes too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I remember that from that incredibly strange film show. They they did they interviewed her or they used an interview from her, and she was like. Jackie promised to marry me if I did this one stunt. And the, the I don't know, the metal bars like fell on my head. And like, you know, and she's like, oh, yeah, I got hurt on that. And no, he didn't marry me either. You know? <laughs> it's like, 
But yeah, she got she got beat up a few times. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. William H. Bonney. He killed 21 men. I don't want to kill you, Bill. No, I sure hope you don't, Billy. And he was just a kid. Billy the Kid. You take this. My luck's running good. Patrick F. Garrett. He was the most dangerous outlaw in the territory. So they made him sheriff. It's pretty fair shooting for an old married man. Just luck, I guess. Oh, Pat Garrett had just one friend. Hey, Billy. Billy the Kid. And just one job. Kill him. Now Sam Peckinpah, the director who unleashed the wild bunch, takes a hard new look at two old friends, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. They were legends in their own time. Times have changed. Times, maybe. Not me. Get to it. One. Two. Three, four, five, six. I hope he gets away. Well, he won't. It's going to be a loose rope and a long drop. Well, I aim to bring the kid in. And I'm aiming to please him. He'll track you down, Billy, and get you. You know, this ain't no time of year to go looking for somebody. I don't know where he went. You've got to do better than that, Ruthie. I got to the point where I don't do nothing for nobody unless there's a piece of gold attached to it. Where is he? Fort Sumner! Fort Sumner. Where are we going, anyway? Fort Sumner. Huh? I know where the kid's at. I'll tell you where he's at. Old Pat ain't gonna like this. James Coburn. Bill! Chris Christofferson. Come on in, Pat! Jason Robards. Slim Pickens. Katty Corrado. Jack Elam. That'd be me, sure. Rita Coolidge. Chill Wills. Yeah. And introducing in his first dramatic motion picture performance. <clears throat> Plums. Recording star Bob Dylan. They say that Pat Garrett got your number. Or sleep with one eye open when you wonder. Sheriff Pat Garrett. Adios. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Legends in their own time. But time was running out. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Beth Akamato. Beth, what has been keeping you busy lately? Oh, I just got finished co-programming a year of film noir here in San Diego, and we're doing uh, 12 months of classic noir and then also blending in a few contemporary noir and 
because it was so painful and difficult to narrow it down to 12 films, we decided to 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 give us some something to narrow that and we decided to look to some of the films that are based on that have very strong literary roots. And so we're we're doing, you know, films from Chandler and James M. Kane and Dashiell Hammett. And I'm a huge noir fan, so I am so looking forward to this. And uh, we are also going to be bringing um, Larry Cohen here to San Diego to host some uh, films uh, from his collection. And uh, some of those are even going to be on 35 millimeters. so we're really excited about that. Are you going to show Bone? No, we don't have enough money to show everything. So uh, the the Academy has a collection of his prints, 35 millimeter prints, and not all of them are in great shape. But um, we're going to be able to show Q and It's Alive and God Told Me To on 35. Oh, and the stuff on 35 millimeter. And then we're going to screen a digital copy of uh, Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover because that's his personal favorite. And um, so if we had more money... <laughs> We'd show all of them, but uh, I also really wanted to show Black Caesar. Um, that's a great one, too. So, damn it. We, I need my own theater is basically the bottom line. So if anybody out there wants to give me one. <laughs> Beth, one of the things that I love uh, looking at the most is when you are going to different film events and you pull out all the stops. <laughs> you dress up. You usually bake or make something food-related that goes on with these things. It just – you put so many people to shame when it comes to the lengths that you go to for your love of film. Well, yeah, I've because the cinema I work with, Digital Gym Cinema, is only 46 seats. And so, like, I can cook for 46 people. Like, that's not hard. So to kind of tempt people to come to films that maybe they might not go to otherwise, I always try to find, like, clever connections that I can make with, you know – if it's a zombie film, I can do a zombie brain or, you know, uh, we did a John Carpenter series. So I, I had to push a little harder to find things to make. So I put like for Prince of Darkness, I made concentrated evil and put it in test tubes. And it was, you know, this green slime that looked just like the evil in the film. So, uh, yeah, I have to come up with ways. And I'm very prepped for my noir series because a friend of mine holds a kind of private noir film festival in his backyard, and I cook the themed desserts for those films every month. And so I'm going to be thinking back and trying to find things to make. I'll probably do a lot of black and white stuff, too, you know, kind of desserts that are nice and black. I can only imagine how much either marshmallows or Cool Whip you're going to go through when you come to the stuff. Oh, yeah. We're still trying to figure out what to make the stuff out of because that's going to be at a bigger theater. So I, it's going to be hard for me to cook for like 226 people and it gets a little pricey. So I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it, Cool Whip, Marshmallow. I, you know, I was trying to think of like what else could we put in there? I mean, I could do yogurt, but it's not quite as much fun. <laughs> uh, it's a little healthier, but, you know, could we do white? cotton candy and put it in there? Ooh. Or, you know? Ooh. 
I like where your head's going here. That's lighter. Yeah, because see, not only do I have to pick out something that's themed properly, I have to pick out something that also fits a budget that's very tiny. And, you know, and then you have to make it for like a large quantity of people or, you know, if it's depending on which theater we're at. But, yeah, I love I love doing that. And I also like, you know, having kind of themed clothes to go with some things as well. And, uh, you know, the thing about like wearing custom clothes like I have stuff that I have these like custom Star Wars dresses and the thing about wearing them is like total strangers will just walk up to me and say may the force be with you or come up to me and go like wow your dress is made out of the same sheets my brother used to have when he was 10 years old and we saw the movie when you know and they'll start rambling off with some nostalgic memory about Star Wars and there's this nice connection where it's like Oh, yeah, you know, I'm part of this bigger community of people who love these movies. So people love hearing the sound of your voice. Where can they go to find out more? (laughs) Well, I work for KPBS here in San Diego, so I have a blog and podcast called Cinema Junkie. So you can go to kpbs.org slash Cinema Junkie. And I also have a Facebook page for Cinema Junkie. And um, I'm readily available on Twitter as Cinebeth and also on Facebook. So you can... Find me pretty easily, but I have uh, my next podcast coming. Uh, the the podcast that's out right now is uh, called Horror Movies as Spiritual Practice. And I speak to someone from a Unitarian church about what we can learn from horror movies. All right. Sounds great. <laughs> Just in time for the holidays and stuff, you know, when you're... Yeah, exactly. Christmas well, thank you so much, Beth, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show, especially now that they're not going to be charging people weird fees for that. And we've gotten a lot of new patrons lately, so thank you very much for that. Really appreciate that. And donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late or happen to be out of the country for extended periods of time. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Hing 往日笑從今日我
良心事。一望你，眼里温馨已通电，心里的变，从前梦一点未改变。今日我与你有诗篇并篇。再度添上新鲜。日发放今天，我伴你往日笑面重现。轻轻叫声，共抬望眼看高空，终于青天有你为你献。拥着你，当初温馨再涌现，心里。希望未污染。今日我与你有诗篇并篇，当年情，此刻是添上两新诗。一望你，眼里温馨已通电，心里边。前梦一点未改变，今日我与你有诗篇并篇，当年情再度添上新鲜。
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.